this stuff. Hello, and welcome back to Play This, the podcast where I say words I haven't said in a long time. <laughs> My name is Max. And I'm Daniel. And this is the podcast that never goes on hiatus, that <laughs> delivers very reliable content to your ears straight from our mouths. Uh, no, that's a lie. Hi, everybody. Uh, sorry it's been so long, if anyone even still listens to this podcast, mm. other than us. <laughs> Ah, uh, we got fans. We got some fans. Yeah, they live with us. Uh, <laughs> in case you've forgotten over the interminable amount of time we've been gone, uh, Play This is the podcast where two old friends talk about video games. Uh, my name is Max. Uh, we already said our names. Uh, well, it's been so long, I just wanted to say them twice <laughs> I'm, in case I'm, anyone forgot. I'm still Daniel. Oh, good job. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I didn't recognize <laughs> you with that old man beard you grew since we last recorded. <laughs> Curling down to the floor, Gandalf-like. Yeah. I actually got a shave since our last recording. Yeah, well, that ruins the bit, and no one can see you. <laughs> it's true. We were both in a wedding, so Daniel actually had to take care of his face for once. Yeah. As did I. I mean, I say that yeah. like I'm not also <laughs> normally sh- shorn like a caveman. <laughs> uh, you were quite handsome at the wedding. Oh, thank you. I, we, um, Stephanie and I have been watching, or we just finished season two of Queer Eye. And oh, nice. like, I think Queer Eye is, you know, one of my favorite shows on television, but watching that show is really an opportunity to realize that other than the fact that I have quite a bit of things in my life together, if you just looked at me on most days, you would think I'd be an eligible contestant for that <laughs> show. <laughs> Jonathan would have a lot to do <laughs> with my beard. I don't know. I don't know who that is, but you've been watching still, it. No, I haven't. Oh my god, Daniel! It's like the greatest show on television. I keep hearing that. You haven't seen season one either. No, season two just came out. Yeah, have haven't seen any of the Netflix Queer Eyes. Oh series. man, you got to get on that. That shit I've, is good. I've been hearing that it's great, so I I have been meaning to check that out. All right. Well, uh, in case you forgot, since we haven't recorded in a while, this is our Netflix series fan cast. <laughs> this week we're going to cover Queer Eye, a show Daniel hasn't seen. Yeah, that uh, that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been a long time. There's been a lot of video game news that has happened. Yeah. Uh, but I think the biggest and most important piece of video game uh, news that happened since we last recorded was E3. Yes. E3, which stands for Everybody Eating everything <laughs> man i would have attended by now if that was the case <laughs> yeah with, with your press pass <laughs> I uh, mean, not like i haven't wanted to attend actual right. e3 this whole time uh so e3 happened and uh rather than giving like a big deep dive in e3 because you know in the last few years uh, especially as more game companies and especially as more big companies like Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo held their own conferences. Yeah. The news at E3 has been, you know, a little bit less exciting than it was maybe in the late 90s or early aughts back in its heyday. Right. And I think this year was kind of no exception to that. Yeah. It it has felt like kind of a quieter E3. Yeah. I think you can kind of tell that especially in the case of Sony and Microsoft that they're starting to gear up for the next generation, you know, right, that... which we expect in 2020 or 2021, I think. I say 2020 is a good bet. I wouldn't be especially shocked if if Sony in particular showed their next console in 2019, but I think that's way too soon. Yeah. I, I really want it to start 2020 bare minimum. 
I would I would love 2021. I think that that'd be I nice. Mean, you know, personally, I think that there's still a lot more to eke out of these these systems, especially yeah. the PlayStation 4. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the Xbox One X came out recently. That's essentially a half step in a system's yeah. life. Yeah, and the PS4 Pro. You know. Yeah, well, that I think that yeah. was less of a that's of a, a fresh point. system. That was yeah. more of a graphic and fidelity upgrade. And yeah, the Xbox One X felt more like a Wii U. Yeah. Than a. Than a I know. yeah, I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah, I would really like 2021. I think this generation deserves to be longer. Games still look really good. I they don't. Do. I don't feel the rush, especially because like I bought a PS4 Pro pretty recently, like within the last year. <laughs> so if they if they're like, here's the PS5, I'm like, oh. And you haven't really played anything that shows off the PS4 Pro yet, have you? Well, uh, oh, Monster Hunter World Monster runs Hunter better. World. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good point. It, oh, if not for this podcast, you wouldn't have played anything. <laughs> that's a good that point. Shows off the PS4 Pro. Well, I'll. I'll be playing Spider-Man later this year, yeah. and I'm sure that'll take advantage of that shit. Agreed. But I think to finish the point on E3, I mean, especially in the, the age of modern media, mm-hmm. uh, companies are less dependent on big conferences like E3 to make space for themselves and get their message to customers. That's they can point. deliver that themselves directly to the customer whenever they want. Yeah. And I think, you know, some E3s are better than others, and that's always been true. Right. But if you compare an E3 now versus what an E3 was in its heyday before yeah. it went away for... Uh, however many years that was three or four years whatever yeah uh they're overall you're gonna have fewer big announcements fewer reveals because companies can just control that message now yeah you're right nintendo has their directs now uh sony's got psx xbox is doing a thing now called inside xbox i think or no it's called xbox insider they're doing a thing that's basically (laughs) nintendo directs now themselves yeah so you're right there's there's less of a necessity to get their big reveals out of e3 they can do that whenever so let's talk about the things that did excite us at this E3. I think there are three games yeah. that we are each mutually most excited for, yeah. which is really cool to me because like, there's a fair amount of crossover in our gaming tastes, but right. not that much yeah. that you would expect that we would both come out of E3 with the same exact top three. Yeah, exactly. Usually when we, even in the history of Play This, when we've talked about our event highlights, we sort of alternate back and forth between our top threes <laughs> right but we told each other our top threes before recording and they were the exact same <laughs> so why don't you kick us off daniel what's uh what's the first game we're gonna cover in our top three from e3 um e1 as we can call it uh i guess get it because e3 oh e- e1 uh, yeah good, good. <laughs> a-, a for effort <laughs> these are the kinds of jokes you come to play this for <laughs> and you wait over a month for <laughs> um I think it maybe makes most sense to talk first about the game that we knew the most about. That's a great idea. Before before E3 happened, and that's Kingdom Hearts 3. Yeah, because this game has been talked about for 32 years. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's been in development for a really long time. We've already seen like a good deal of stuff from Kingdom Hearts 3. We saw the Toy Story world. We saw the Monster the Monsters, Inc. We saw the Monsters, Inc. world already. You almost already. Monster Hunter, didn't you? <laughs> I almost did, yeah. Uh, <laughs> That'd be quite the crossover. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, we, we've seen a good deal of how the game plays, but they showed off two new worlds along yeah. with the release date right. at E3. Well, technically, they announced the release date like a day early because <laughs> they delayed the game and they didn't want that to sort of uh, dampen people's hype. But, yeah, they showed off the Frozen World, which yeah. I think everyone expected, but, right. it, but it looks great. Josh Gad clearly reprises <laughs> his role as Olaf if no one else does. Uh, <laughs> and then they showed... Something I think we were all expecting far less, a new Pirates of the Caribbean world yes. based off of the third movie. Pirates like booty. That's the third movie, right? 
You know, let's just call it that because I actually forget the <laughs> no, fucking, I, I forget the I name. don't think I've ever seen the third movie. I think I saw the first two and I was like, that's enough of the series for me. That's fair. Third movie is just mediocre incarnate. Like, that's one movie where I just, like, sat through the whole thing and didn't feel, like, any extreme emotion. I wasn't mad. I wasn't happy. It was just like I sat there and watched stuff happen for three hours. So when you combine that experience with the previous experience of playing a Pirates of the Caribbean game in Kingdom Hearts, you must have been <laughs> super jazzed when they showed this announcement. You know, <laughs> I think it was really funny to see the Pirates world because I feel like every single person that's ever played Kingdom Hearts 2, like, played the Port Royale world, played the world based on Pirates 1, and went, this is awful. There's nothing <laughs> good about this. The models for the Pirates characters look gross. Sora, Donald, Goofy don't fit in aesthetically at all with the rest of the sprites. Like, one half's Uncanny Valley, the other half's really cartoony, and they just, like, clash horribly. The The gimmick where your opponents were ghosts so you couldn't hit them unless they were in the moonlight. Uh, <laughs> actually, fun fun story that I'll share when it's time is that I've been playing through Kingdom Hearts 2. Oh, yeah. Uh, to sort of prep. Oh, man, there must be a lot of parallels between playing that and playing Psychonauts in terms of frustrating game design. Oh, well, you know... Uh... <laughs> Boy, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll have a lot we'll, to talk we'll about get that. Into yeah, that. Yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> But so, like, Port Royale is actually really fresh in my head, and they did nothing right with that world. So when I got to see the the Pirates 3 world, when I when I got to see the Pirates world in Kingdom Hearts 3, uh, they've already fixed so much. Like, the Pirates characters look really good in that without looking Uncanny Valley. Right. They made Sora look more realistic this time so that he fits with the, with the cast better. They all have pirate-themed designs now. Sora, Donald, and Goofy all have pirate costumes, and they look great. And the gameplay gimmick seems to be ship combat now. Verdict's out on how fun that will be, but that looks more fun than what the Pirates World in Kingdom Hearts 2 was, for yeah, sure. I'm not super excited about the ship combat. I've never really enjoyed ship combat in games, and right. I'm also still somewhat burned from the gummy ship uh, in Kingdom Hearts, which is like the worst part of Kingdom Hearts. It's back for Kingdom Hearts 3. It's back for Kingdom Hearts 3. They did show it off. And I'm just <laughs> worried that like this is not the team I want designing combat between ships. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so, though, the reveal of like the ship, when you first saw the ship like sailing on sand. Yeah. And that was, and then you saw Jack Sparrow and, and Sora. That yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah. But then I saw how much ship combat it looks like there's going to be, and I got immediately less excited for this world. Okay. I understand that. I'm cautiously optimistic for the world uh, yeah. this time. And the frozen world just looks great. Like the like the sledding on Goofy's shield yeah. and just all the cool ice stuff you can do. The Monsters, Inc. world looks awesome. Yeah. I love there isn't a limit to the amount of teammates you can have in Kingdom Hearts 3 as opposed to past Kingdom Hearts games. Like you have to do things in Kingdom Hearts 2 where like, okay, you're in the Aladdin world now. Aladdin has joined your party Get rid of either Donald or Goofy. Right now, everyone's in your party all the time. Yeah. Now, yeah. Now, not only not only will an added teammate not make you choose between Donald or Goofy, but like they'll just give you two characters from the Disney World you're visiting. You know, like Monsters Inc. has Mike and Sully as your partner. Tangled has Rapunzel and Eugene. Yeah. If these are the decisions that that caused the game to get as delayed as it has been, you know, waiting for a system that had better. Uh, capability for handling that much processing. Yeah, yeah. Then I think that could be worth it. Yeah, I think so too. Like the the game did get delayed to like January twenty sixth, twenty nineteen, 
they said 2018 earlier this year, and then they said, oops, sorry, we want to focus, we want an international release for this, so we're going to push it out further. And going back even further, this was a game that was supposed to come out last generation. You know, they never actually announced it Well, for... they started talking about it last generation, Yes, is a better way to say it. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, the wait for Kingdom Hearts 3 has been very long, yeah. and I do think that everything I've seen of it makes me think that it'll be worth the wait. It looks so fun. Yeah, I agree. So that's that's Kingdom Hearts 3. Uh, I think the second game that we are eager to talk about and most excited coming out of uh, E3 is a game that we thought we knew a little bit about going in. Turns out we knew fucking nothing. (laughs) And that's Super Smash Bros. Uh, It's now called Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, we learned um, at E3. And Daniel, in your in your spare time, when you're you're not doing this podcast with me once every seven months, uh, <laughs> you do a Switch a Super Smash Bros. Ultimate uh, prediction podcast. Yes, <laughs> which you might have to change the title of now. <laughs> so why don't you break down a little bit as you are the Smash oh, expert man. in my life? What happened at E3 with Smash Brothers? Because it was a lot. Yeah. So yeah, and, and <laughs> under and under thirty minutes, if you can. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> So yes, I I think it's it's great to have the context going in that I I run a side podcast called A Smashing Theory, a, a podcast where for the past few months, uh, my co-host Sean and I have been predicting what we think is going to get added and removed <laughs> from the roster of the next Smash Bros. game, which we didn't even know the name of at the time, assuming that it would be treated like a normal Smash Bros. game. Yes, uh, which historically removes a small handful of characters from the previous game and you know adds like a substantial amount more so you know i i operated on that assumption and that was a mistake (laughs) uh sakurai announced uh you know like they ended the nintendo direct by talking about the new smash bros game and sakurai actually just went uh i'm sure you're wondering what characters from previous games will be in this one uh here is a roster reveal trailer and you know it starts by just showing like mario and Pikachu and Link, Link and yeah. stuff, yeah, you know, just characters you'd expect. And then the Ice Climbers show up. It's like, hey, the Ice Climbers are back. Which people have been speculating that yeah. this would be their return. Yeah, right? So, like, nothing was strange there. And then he showed, like, the Pokemon trainer coming back. He's like, oh, that was unexpected. That's cool. And then suddenly it just shows Shadow Moses, the stage that Snake had in Smash Bros. Brawl. And Snake, like, materializes onto the stage and then it just says, everyone is here on the screen. And then it shows young Link. And then it shows fucking Pichu. <laughs> and then it, you know, it reveals that every character that has ever been in a Smash Brothers game as a playable character is also playable in Smash Bros. Ultimate, as they revealed the title to be. You know, I think what's <laughs> what was funny about this is that you and a couple of other people had ended up uh, on the side of predicting that everyone from Smash 4 would return. Yes. That this would kind of be Sakurai's, like, hey, the Wii U wasn't super well supported, yeah. so let's give those characters another shot. Yes, I and thought exactly that. You yes. got halfway there. <laughs> I sure did, yeah. No, never in a million years did I think Pichu would ever be in another Smash Bros. game again. And though that's, though Sakurai did say that a lot of movesets are changing, it doesn't look like Pichu's has changed all that much. <laughs> yeah. Maybe he'll do more damage than Pikachu now to offset the fact that he damages himself but yeah um i i have a feeling that pikachu has like will have a couple of things that make pichu very different now because when uh he then did like a character reel where he showed off a lot of what makes certain characters different and what's funny is he kind of left out some major changes 
for certain characters. Uh, like, you know, when, when he talks about Link's changes, he's like, oh yeah, Link, uh, Link has bombs from Breath of the Wild now. Right. That's it, moving on. But like, <laughs> he ended up having a lot of changes. One cool thing is that uh, when he shoots arrows, they'll stick in the floor now if they miss the opponent, and he can pick them up and then shoot like... Uh, multiple and, arrows at once. And shoot multiple arrows at once. And there's a lot of changes like that that Sakurai just neglected to mention in his video. Right. So even though he didn't talk much about Pichu changes, he's just like, yeah, P- Pichu still hurts hurts itself. And there's definitely stuff he's keeping close to his chest still and, and keeping as surprises for later. Yeah, I mean, I, we'll definitely learn more about this game before it comes out. They, they love trickling out Smash reveals throughout the year. Yes, yeah. And this game's not coming out till December, sadly, so... yeah. Which is why I'm still in business with my... <laughs> I, I think there's still Smash predictions left to make. So a Smashing Theory is still running. But it's bi-weekly now because I have less to talk about. So let's talk for a second because we're both... I mean, obviously, uh, Daniel is a huge Smash Brothers fan as oh, evidenced yeah. by the fact that he has a whole podcast about <laughs> it. Um, but I'm also, a, a, a you know, as someone whose first nintendo console that i ever owned was a switch yeah i'm still someone who's a huge fan of the smash bros series i've spoken hyper in, in hyperbolic ways a lot about games i've spent a lot of time on yeah. but i think if you if you were to add it all up i might have spent the most time playing smash bros melee right of any game in my life and i never even owned a gamecube right uh, we, yeah. <laughs> we used to play like countless hours of smash bros melee that's still my favorite smash game and Early reports indicate that the gameplay in five is going to be most similar to Melee, kind of somewhere in between Melee and and uh, four. Yeah, it's like Melee and four had a baby, right? Basically, like it it gets rid of very technical stuff like wave dashing that was in Melee, but it's still like a faster game. Yeah, it's less heavy. Yeah. So, I mean, we're both huge fans of Smash Brothers. So let's talk for a minute about how we feel about this character decision. Because, I mean, I'll start it off by saying that, first of all, I'm not necessarily in the camp that uh, a bigger roster is always better. Yeah. In fact, I've kind of enjoyed smaller, tighter rosters like Melee more than I've enjoyed their predecessors. Though right. There are characters who've been introduced in each uh, uh, successive game that I've enjoyed, like uh, Diddy Kong in 3 yeah. and uh, Bowser Jr., who's like... <laughs> one of my favorites in four yeah um but in general i'm not always a, a huge believer in that a larger roster is better in fighting games and this game is going to be a ginormous yeah roster yeah right now it has like 68 characters right depending yeah. on how you want to count the echo characters yes yeah, exactly yeah it's hard to talk about because we don't know exactly what the changes to old characters who were booted from the series will be right but for a lot of those characters there's a reason that they weren't in uh games following right yeah, like, there, there's some returning characters that it's really nice to see. Like, it'll be fun to play as Squirtle and Ivysaur again. Yeah. Uh, Snake had a very unique play yeah, style. Yeah, Snake's that never, great. Yeah, that never came back. Snake was a really great character. Yeah. And it's really great that we didn't, like, lose any of the DLC characters of 4 and right. and characters that I was worried would get cut from 4 because, because some of them are kind of fringe, you know, right. like, kind of not as relevant now as they were then. Yeah, the the roster is at risk of feeling bloated when it's like this many characters and so many of them are, I won't say clones, because uh, people's description of which characters are and aren't clones really differentiates depending on sort of the the level of fandom, (laughs) Right. Uh, as as I've learned. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, there's a lot of of overlap, there's a lot of characters with derivative movesets, and normally... That could concern me, you know, like it, it bothered me in in Super Street Fighter 4, Ultra Street Fighter 4, when n- like 
eight or nine of the characters in the 44-character roster were variations of Ryu's moveset. Uh, you know, you had Ryu, you had Ken, Akuma, Dan, Goken, <laughs> uh, Evil Ryu. I haven't even named all of them. Right. Sakura, like a minimum of seven Shoto characters is what they're called. And, you know, that that bothered me a little in Street Fighter. But in Smash, it bothers me less, especially because, I know, in Street Fighter, the goal is to have, like, a big, like, varied, balanced roster. Sakurai pretty much, like, says straight up here, it's like, my goal is to is to have every character, you know, to right. sort of celebrate the Everyone history. Everyone is here. Yeah, exactly. Like, his goal is clearly to celebrate the history of Smash Brothers and get you to experience all of it. You know, like, looking at a lot, a lot of the media we've already seen... Some people are speculating, including me, that we're probably also going to get every stage that's ever been in Smash Brothers. I mean, I wonder if the Switch is going to be able to handle this game at that point. <laughs> and I, I think this game is essentially going to be like a Smash, like, like a Nintendo museum that you can yeah. play. Basically, just you get to see like all this, all the Smash history, which means seeing all this Nintendo history. I think that is exciting, and also the fact that everyone like. With the exception of maybe Pichu, like, everyone has had sort of these side characters as their main at some point. This potentially, this has the potential to make everyone happy, you know? Everyone gets yeah. their main back. Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, I think that's a fair point, and, like, there is kind of this, as is so true with Nintendo in general, their games are designed with joy as, yeah. like, the first instinct, rather than, like, competitiveness, or yeah. balance, or, yes. you know, whatever other, you know, words you can put onto fighting games. Right. Uh, specifically but also just kind of gaming game design ethos yeah and that's definitely evident in in smash brothers like when you were saying that uh, kind of a nintendo museum yeah that makes sense because that's thematically linked to what smash brothers was from the very first which is yeah. like co you know collectible characters that came to life and started fighting each other yeah that was the original design behind the game yeah um you know kind of artistically yeah i know we're just going to spend a lot of time playing this game yeah well assuming i can with a baby right we'll see <laughs> yeah um but yeah super smash bros uh ultimate is a is a game i'm very excited for me too and oh man ridley like oh yeah ridley yeah i i have wanted ridley since i saw him in that opening cutscene in melee right that opening animation for melee played where like samus and ridley face off I didn't even know who Ridley was when I saw that. <laughs> I got into Metroid after I saw that cutscene. Yeah. Because it was so cool to me. And ever since then, like, I wanted Ridley in Brawl, I wanted him in 4, and every time I'm, I was like, this is the game where they add Ridley. So I did that again for Smash 5. <laughs> I, I did that, like, on my podcast, and I was actually right this time, so that was nice. And man, Ridley looks like a super great character. He has this one attack where if you time it right, you do like 100% damage, but yeah. you don't knock the character at all, yeah. which is a really interesting trade-off. Yeah, you just give them like, you just stun them in place. They like slump to the floor and you get like time to do a follow-up attack. Ooh, so good. My so favorite cool. thing about that attack is I was watching the treehouse and they were showing off Ridley and, and yeah. uh, someone did that attack. And the, I forget who it was, but the, um, the smash representative was like, you know, we're still, we're still playing with the numbers. So this attack might not do that much damage by the end. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was clear. It was like doing 130% damage yeah. or something ridiculous. It's clearly going to get nerfed, but yeah. <laughs> It's oh, still man. really cool. Yeah, what if it didn't, though? <laughs> I think that was a very clear <laughs> line that it's going to end. Yeah. That's uh, a lot of damage. Yeah. So anyway, before we get too nitty gritty on this conversation, right. those are our thoughts on Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Right. Uh, we're both ultimately excited for it. Aha. Aha. 
And so quickly, which is not a thing we do well in this podcast, uh, let's talk about our third most excited game coming out of E3, which is Cyberpunk 2077. Yeah. Which is a bit of an interesting choice for Daniel. I'm not surprised that I was very excited about this game. Yeah, me neither. But I think we're both a little surprised that you're as excited as you are. Yeah, because usually, I don't know, um, Western RPGs aren't usually my thing. Yeah. Um, like I've played a lot of them because I, you know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot that I, you know, I don't want to ignore like an entire like subset of the RPG genre because I love RPGs so much. But generally when I play Western RPGs, I, I just fail to get hooked on them as easily as I get hooked on so many JRPGs. And especially, I know, like there's a lot of Western RPGs where the aesthetic and the way you play them can get very samey. Yeah. They bo- they often become map collection games where the most important thing you can do is just find a place on a map and collect a thing. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a thrilling way to play a video game. And especially modern day ones yeah. uh, kind of focus a lot on the open world, but they don't fill the world enough to make right. that interesting. It's just an empty sandbox. Yeah. That said, like, I've been interested in a lot of Western RPGs, and I, I was kind of interested in uh, The Witcher 3. Right. But the way I experience media, <laughs> I'd want to play Witcher 1 and 2 before I played Witcher 3. And Witcher 1 and 2 are are games that were made when that developer was not as good at developing games as they are now. Right. So let's back up a second to say that uh, Cyberpunk 2077, if you haven't heard about it, right. is uh, the new game coming out. We don't know when. Um, speculation is either... It's most likely going to be 2020. Yeah. Um, some people are holding out hope for mid to late release in 2019. Yeah. But it's the new game being developed by CD Projekt Red, who yes. is one of the most critically acclaimed developers currently working in video games, period. Yes. Um, they developed the Witcher series, most recently Witcher 3, which won you know tons of game awards oh yeah yeah and yeah. is highly revered for being a western rpg that is sandboxy but is um sandboxy in a meaningful way yeah uh which neither daniel nor i have played in fact i don't think either of us have ever played any game by cd project red that's correct uh because it's really been just the, the witcher, witcher series, series mostly right. and gwent right which i mean i have interest in in that i like uh card games but uh, i haven't yeah. played it yeah yeah same i've watched my roommate sean play through some of the witcher 3 and you know it looks like a well-made game yeah uh so what is most interesting to me about uh cyberpunk 2077 and when it was announced what was interesting at the time even was that it looked like a very um kind of advanced but standard western rpg but set in a uh futuristic world yeah uh, and you know, most frequently those games take place in fantasy settings. Yes. Yeah. So the fact that we were getting a um, futuristic setting uh, was really exciting. And I think that promise was over delivered on at this E3. Oh yeah. There isn't a single game. I think that anyone has been more excited about coming out of E3 and all of the people who've had hands on demos, which isn't very many people have like gone over the top to say it's even better than the trailer made it look. Yeah. Which, I mean, that kind of hype is a common problem in the video games industry. (laughs) Uh, There's often a fine line between journalist and fanboy in the video games industry, more so than a lot of other industries. Yeah. But it it definitely seems like uh, a game that right now the hype is, you know, off the charts for, and there are a whole bunch of things that were evident in 
the trailer that they showed, and then there was also a secret message at the end of the trailer that people put online, yeah. which made people more excited. And then hearing that it was actually running in engine made people more excited. Yeah, yeah. Hearing yeah. that they promised it was going to be a this gen game made people more excited. Uh, but the fact that it is an RPG but plays like a tabletop RPG, they have said it's been oh yeah very heavily inspired by tabletop RPGs. Yes. Um, there is character creation. You get to choose a lot of aspects of your character, but yeah. you're not locked into any one class. Yes. Uh, is super cool. It is going to be a first-person shooter right. uh, with third-person driving, which is going to be interesting to see how they balance that out. Well, it is going to be interesting, yeah. Um, especially because neither of us are huge first-person shooter players, but yeah. there definitely seems to be the hope that um, this game will not be over-reliant on shooting. Yeah. Um, and that there, you'll be able to deal with the world in, in kind of more dynamic ways. Yeah. Uh, Max, you recommended Fallout 2 to me uh, last year uh, for our podcast, there were a lot of things that were frustrating when I played that game, but one of the things I loved about it, and one of the things I love about Western RPGs of that era is how many ways you could play that game completely differently, right. you know? Like, I was almost able to play through the entirety of Fallout 2 without any combat against right. a human being. Right. When I hear all this stuff about cyberpunk, it gives me hope that I might be able to play the game without ever shooting a bullet, that I could just, right. that I could just play through, like, as a hacker and just hack my way out of every problem. And this is me sort of projecting that desire onto the game. That might not be what happens, and it won't be the game's fault if that's not what happens. Right. But hearing about the amount of choice that people have had in demo and and how many possibilities that CD Projekt Red is accounting for, and the fact that CD Projekt Red sort of has the pedigree to make one believe that they could pull that off right. makes me really excited. And let me say that I agree with you. And also to clarify the point that like, uh, this has also been a trend in Western RPGs, uh, where combat is de-emphasized in the place of stealth, but it's really terrible stealth. Yeah. And I think one thing that has me hopeful about this game is it won't just be that kind of binary choice of like shoot everyone or sneak up on, on them and then kill them from behind. Right. Which is like thief and horizon <laughs> zero dawn and looks like what ghost of tsushima is going to be which yeah. is why i'm less excited about that game than i once was yeah like yeah. there's then this trend especially in western rpgs where it's like okay you don't have to shoot or or stab everything right you can sneak around really poorly <laughs> <laughs> and that's like not at all exciting right and so the idea that if if by saying using the magic words of tabletop RPG, what they're saying to us yeah. is you're going to have more than just those two choices. Yeah. Well, it's whether, you know, whether or not that's actually true is remains to be determined, but I'm definitely excited for that possibility. Me too. For um, sure. It, you know, and going back to that point of like that you're making about kind of how Western RPGs used to be. Uh, this definitely feels inspired by Fallout 2. Yeah. Yeah. By Shadowrun. Yeah. Um, those kind of like, you know, what were those late nineties, yeah. Um, Western games that the size of the sandbox was small, but the tools that they gave you allowed you to play in it in so many different ways. Yeah. And to continue that metaphor and just kind of wrap up the point, modern Western RPGs are mostly concerned about the size of the sandbox. Yeah. They're not yeah. concerned about what toys they've put in there. Yeah. And that's, you know, an empty kind of game. Yes. Agreed. So Cyberpunk 2077 looks like it will not be empty. Yeah, and that's that's really exciting. That's really exciting. I'm I'm pumped for that game, even though it's the farthest out. Right. We don't even know when it's coming out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, man, my fingers are crossed for 2019, but I'm not getting my hopes up. Same. I I feel like that's going to be a cross gen game, basically. Like you'll be able to play it on a PS4 and on an Xbox One, 
but if you want it to look the way that it did in that gameplay trailer, it'll come out for the PS5 and the Xbox 2.7 <laughs> at launch. <laughs> the Xbox Pi. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's... <laughs> I'd actually like I'd actually like a name like that. Like it'll be like a launch window title for these next gen systems oh my God. and it'll look the best on those. Daniel, I'm calling that right now. I just had a terrible realization. What? If this game doesn't come out till twenty twenty, I might not ever be able to play this game because I'm gonna have a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> All right, C D Project Red. If you are listening, you need to get me this game before my baby is old enough to be a toddler and therefore I can never play a video game again. <laughs> Please hear my cries. Hear my plea. Oh, man. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we can wrap up our E3 discussion. Those are the three games that we're most excited about coming out of E3. Mm-hmm. Um, if there are any games that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover, send us some mail. And we will read it on the next podcast and talk about the games that excited you most at uh, E3. Yeah. Real quick, I know there's one other news thing we wanted to cover, and it's very old news at this at this point, but it's so great and so cool. We just wanted to give it a little bit of lip service. Right. And that was like, I don't know, a month ago? Uh, <laughs> Roughly was, three yeah, weeks, maybe? Yeah, no, no, about a month. It, it happened like a week or two before the E3 yeah. stuff started happening, yeah. Uh, Microsoft revealed um, a fully accessible controller uh, for gamers who have any number of um, accessibility needs. Yeah. The controller is customizable yeah. so that it's like, you know, fun- it's uh, physically customizable so you can configure it in different ways. Yeah. You can also set it for different inputs. Um, and they showed off a, a video with a bunch of different people who have accessibility needs using it. And it looks like it functions super seamlessly. And it's um, just, it's a really important and awesome step in video gaming. And we just wanted to give a shout out to Microsoft for making this a priority. Yeah. It's a, kind of a shame that it's taken this long for oh, yeah. um, for not a third party option, for like a first party option for, for these gamers. Yeah. Um, but uh, Microsoft hit this one out of the park. It's from, from what it seems like. Yeah, nah, like, it covers just such a wide variety of accessibility options, and it's a hundred bucks, like, and the amount of options that it offers, like, it looks like Microsoft is going to be losing money on this controller, so I I think it's just really amazing that they're doing that. So, Nintendo and Sony, you have been warned, you've been (laughs) served, Uh, you know, there's really not an excuse in the same way should not be making technology like this. Yeah. And not be putting it at the forefront of all of your efforts. Yeah, nah, the, the ball is definitely in their court at this point. I'm sure now that they've seen the response to this, they've seen like that there is a demand for that. I think a response should be inevitable. I don't, I don't know if it is inevitable. Well, especially with Nintendo. Yeah. Well, yeah. The the thing like it feels weird on both halves because Nintendo is so weird about how they do things. You can never predict which trends they'll pick up on and which ones they'll ignore for a decade. Right. And Sony lately they've been so comfortable right on their throne they've been so comfortable with their first place they haven't cared as much about pro-consumer initiatives as they did when they were ramping up to launch the ps4 you know like they they were sort of like champions of the consumers when they announced the ps4 and they're like hey guess what microsoft over there just announced that uh that their new console is anti-use games Ours isn't, baby. You don't have to be <laughs> online to play it. You can get as many used games as you want. And, you know, like, that that got, like, a standing ovation at the time. But now you fast forward to, like, five years. Well, in the f- yeah, but, like, they won't even let you play Fortnite on, on the Switch. Yeah, exactly. You fast forward to five years in the future. Not only did Microsoft, like, backtrack on their anti-consumer, like, on the things they were doing that were anti-consumer, but they're also doing stuff like, hey, 
if you give us 10 bucks a month, we'll give you our newest games right. just at launch. If uh, we we're doing cross play with the switch, about 60% of our Xbox 360 library is backwards compatible on the Xbox one. And you can just download it and play it that way. And, and then Sony's over there like going like, Oh, we, um, we don't want cross play because we're thinking of the children. Also, no one plays PS3 games anymore. <laughs> uh, it's it's just bizarre to see Sony in this position. It is, and well, and but also the point I want to make too is that like this shouldn't be a market decision. Oh no, it this shouldn't. shouldn't be a decision driven by the market because like the market for this is never going to be super huge. No, agreed. But it's not about the economics of it. It's yeah. about what are you doing for your community. Yes, exactly. And there's really no reason, like you know, this isn't necessarily a fair analogy, but gamers get all up in arms all the time about uh, translation versus. Um, uh, dub yeah and like that's a really niche argument to make and like it, it affects your gaming experience but like right. ultimately that's a first world issue yeah this is not a first world issue this yeah. is a this is an access issue yes and an access issue in this day and age it, like it's inexcusable yeah that you know we would even praise microsoft for doing this it should just yeah. be the norm no and and actually one thing that was funny when i was watching the trailer that microsoft made for this I remember thinking, it's like, you're patting yourself on the back a little yeah, too much, exactly. Microsoft. <laughs> right. You are, but, like, on, on the other hand, like, it it really, like, I, I think I would have been even more wowed by the announcement if they just, like, put it out there like it wasn't a big deal. Right. Because it, yeah. sh- it shouldn't be. Right, it shouldn't be. The context matters. Like, it's only a big deal because, like, the video game industry has sucked at this. Yes. Which is, like, again, like, yeah, exactly like what you're saying. Like, don't yeah. praise yourself so highly. You're only getting applause now because you've sucked at it for so long. Yeah. It's a little bit like Trump signing the uh, <laughs> signing the executive order to not uh, separate families anymore. <laughs> That's your own fucking fault, mister. Yeah, We're yeah. not going to praise you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, this has been a really, really depressing week. <laughs> But also, I, I, we've been picking on Sony a little bit in this segment. I also want to pick on Nintendo to say that, like, Nintendo can't even listen to their gamers enough to stop using motion controls yeah. and Switch games as mandatory. Um, like, in, for instance, in, 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 um, in Mario Odyssey, there right. are moves that you, you don't necessarily have to use the motion yeah. controls for, but it's more effective if you do. Yeah, exactly. And, like, that's horribly yeah. inf- in- inaccessible. Yeah, no. So right. I would like to believe that they would step up and, and follow Microsoft here, but, like... I don't know. They can be stubborn yeah. in some weird ass ways. Yeah, it's exactly. It really should be just across every system. But like Nintendo and Sony have been so weird this generation in their own ways that I don't have a lot of faith that it'll happen for them, even if it should. Which is why Microsoft, they shouldn't be patting themselves on the back, but they do deserve a pat on the back. They do deserve some kudos for for taking the first step, you know, for drawing people's attention to this being a need. And for doing it in in what looks like a really good way, yes. Like it doesn't look like it's going to suck. Yes, <laughs> it looks yes. like it will be a fulfilling experience for gamers. Yeah. So also that's great. Yes, agreed. So that was supposed to be a short segment, but really what we proved in that segment is that Daniel and I can complain about anything in the video <laughs> game world. <laughs> So let's move on. Um, I believe this is now the time when we're going to talk about what else we've been up to. But Daniel, why don't you go first? Uh, sure. Well, I guess I'll just jump off with the main game that I've been playing when I haven't been playing Psychonauts. Um, <laughs> and 
there was a period of time when returning to Psychonauts felt difficult. So I would play Kingdom Hearts 2 instead. I mentioned actually in our Monster Hunter World episode that I was interested in doing a series playthrough of Kingdom Hearts. You did. Uh, in the lead up to Kingdom Hearts 3. And, you know, I had already recently played Kingdom Hearts 1. And I had started a playthrough of Kingdom Hearts RE Chain of Memories. But I was not enjoying that game. <laughs> so what I finally did was I bit the bullet and I watched a video that was all the RE Chain of Memories cutscenes. Sure. On YouTube, which just shows you how much demand there is for for yeah. the people who to yeah. understand the story of Kingdom Hearts without playing the games, right? Yeah, and then after I watched that, the story of that game is a mess. By the way, <laughs> uh, I after I played that, after I watched that, I uh, I started Kingdom Hearts two, and you know that game has actually been a great experience. I really enjoyed playing it. It's been a lot of fun. What's your favorite world? Um, Lion King. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Pride Lands world was was really great. They actually managed to make Lion Sora feel fun to play, even though he doesn't have all of his tools. But, like, I remember when I first played Kingdom Hearts 2, when it first came out, and I was very disappointed by it. Yeah, because, me too. Because Kingdom Hearts 1 really celebrates the the union of Square Enix and Disney. You know, it, it really... It really, like, melds those two together in a fun way, and it really focuses on all the Disney stuff. You know, all the Disney stuff felt really well integrated into sort of this this JRPG story. A bunch of Disney characters were very important. You you had, like, the League of Disney villains all, like, conspiring against against Sora and his friends. And, you know, like, the, the sort of original characters and Final Fantasy characters in there were very small bit roles, essentially. Right. Um, Sometimes Easter eggs. Yeah, and then in Kingdom Hearts 2, they had twice as many Final Fantasy characters. They had a a bunch of new original characters called the Organization. <laughs> a bunch of mysterious, <sighs> uh, sexy anime men in robes. Some some sexy anime women in robes. Mostly anime men. <laughs> and the story became much more Final Fantasy than Disney. It really got, like, super JRPG. And the, this, the Disney stuff felt almost incidental sometimes. Yeah. The only important Disney character... Uh, outside of their own world was Maleficent, really, and Pete, kind of. And, you know, I, was, I was very disappointed by that. Since then, it's been very clear that that's just what Kingdom Hearts is. So, like, right. so like, I've gone through the five stages of grief already at this point. <laughs> when when I first played Kingdom Hearts two, I was at anger. Right now, I'm at acceptance. So, playing through <laughs> it again has been much more fun. It's like, yeah, okay. Like now that I'm prepared. For the game being a lot of anime nonsense, <laughs> uh, being a lot, uh, it actually becomes much more fun to experience. Like now, I just fucking I fucking lose it because Donald Duck saying "Sora, it's Sephiroth" is so <laughs> hilarious. I especially imagine with those old graphics too, like the blocky Donald saying. <laughs> well, I've been playing. Uh, I've been playing through a two point five remix version, and that actually like cleans up the the graphics really nicely. Oh, okay. Actually. They cleaned up the Port Royale. They cleaned up the Pirates of the Caribbean graphics now. And the clashing visuals is an it's even worse, worse yeah. problem now. More Uncanny Valley. Yes, more Uncanny Valley for sure. Every uh, time you say Uncanny Valley, it sounds like you're saying Uncandy Valley, <laughs> which is like, man, I wish that was a thing. Yeah, right? Like, you know, I, I wish I was... That's in... actually a world in Kingdom Hearts, yeah. the Uncandy <laughs> Valley. <laughs> yeah, like, I wish I was in Candy Valley while I was playing this game, but I'm just in Uncandy <laughs> right, Valley, exactly. man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a valley that takes your candy from you. I've enjoyed this playthrough of Kingdom Hearts 2 much more, although I am at the part now. Kingdom Hearts 2 kind of does this thing where you play through each world, 
and you experience like half of its story basically and then like a big anime whatever happens and you have to go back to each of those worlds you have to like backtrack and play through more of the story yeah and uh it, it feels like padding and it feels like maybe a slog is a bit harsh but it definitely like kind of kills the momentum that the first half of the game had sure still having fun with it and at this rate still looking forward to playing birth by sleep and dream drop distance later God, those names are so bad <laughs> they're bad names they're bad names but yes, I'm I'm ready to embrace what Kingdom Hearts is, and I've I've been playing fun video games as a result. The the gameplay improvements really are clear as day when playing Kingdom Hearts two after Kingdom Hearts one. So sure. yeah, have been having a good time with that. What's what's something that you've been experiencing? You want to go back and forth? Yeah. So um, I decided I've been wanting to play uh, this series for a while anyway, mm-hmm. but I was actually inspired to finally bite the bullet by um, your uh, other podcast, you guys did a three-part series uh, trying to predict uh, roster inclusions in Smash from uh, third-party franchises. Yeah, yeah. And your final one was like, you know, deuces wild. Just guess whatever the fuck you want from any franchise that has right. never been in in Smash before. Right. And I knew I wanted to uh, suggest a character from the series, so I was like, I should probably start playing the series. Now, I didn't end up playing... I haven't yet played the game that I recommend the character from, right. but the series is the SteamWorld Dig series. Right. And um, I started with Steam jo- SteamWorld Dig 1, which I'm very close to beating now. And uh, the character I ended up recommending on your podcast was Dorothy from SteamWorld Dig 2. Yeah. Although I think she makes a cameo in one. Oh, interesting. And SteamWorld Dig is uh, a really, really interesting series because it's cross-genre. Um, one and two are both kind of mining uh, RPG games. Right. But in the middle, there's a game called SteamWorld Dig, SteamWorld Heist, yeah. um, which is like a tactical, progressive shooter RPG huh, thing. Have yeah. you not seen any gameplay from that game? No, I know that it's, it's different. So fascinating. But I had, yeah. Huh. yeah, I haven't played it yet. I'm going to play that next, obviously, because I'm going to play them in chronological order. Right. Right. And it's not connected, I don't think, at all, really, to the to the story of SteamWorld Dig 1 or 2. Right. Um, it's just in the same universe. Right. And it looks super fascinating. But SteamWorld Dig 1 um, is a great game. I'm not going to necessarily recommend it to you for the podcast, because I just think it's not enough of a game. Okay. But for $7 on Switch, I highly recommend it to people. It's uh, The platforming feels great. The game design is really awesome. I love the character. It's not necessarily quite as fleshed out as SteamWorld Dig 2, obviously. And like, right, right. I'm really excited to get to that game and play through some of the improvements. Like, It can be kind of annoying to get back to town now, um, and I'm excited to see how they made that easier in SteamWorld Dig 2. Okay. But it's just a really overall very satisfying game. Well-designed, well-made, uh, a really great price point. Absolutely recommended. Cool. Um, great game. Nice. And I'm excited to see more in that world. Okay, cool. Good to hear. I've been playing a game called sushi striker so i'm glad that you are playing this because i've heard it's awesome it is it is awesome talking about bargain buys on the switch yeah well not quite a bargain it's like 50 bucks oh wait what yeah it's uh it's 40 bucks on the 3ds 50 bucks on the switch for some reason i thought it was like wow never mind keep going yeah no not a bargain (laughs) uh like it should be cheaper but i've still i've still not regretted my purchase at all uh, Sushi Striker is basically kind of this action puzzle game where you have these conveyor belts of different colored sushi and you connect to the same colored sushi and then eat all of it and throw the <laughs> stack of plates that you've made at your opponent who also has their own conveyor belts on the other side of the screen. That's a pretty simple like game mechanic, although obviously very silly to start with. Right. Um, first thing I love about it, 
they add a Pokemon into it. Really? So you have these things called sushi sprites, the uh, the creatures that supply you with sushi, and and uh, they all have powers that you can use uh, during the match. Like there's um there's your sort of your mascot uh, sushi sprite will turn all the sushi on your side of the table uh, to the same color sushi, so you can link them all together, like for like a big stack of plates. There's a sushi sprite that charges your plates with electricity for a limited period of time, so they do more damage. There's uh, there's one that uh, that basically makes your opponent's conveyor belt go faster, so it's harder for them to link sushi together. Uh, <laughs> you get to make bonds with these sushi sprites and then select what layout of sushi sprites you want. Sort of like change your playstyle and change the way that you can do the most damage and and have the best strategy against your opponent. It it adds a surprising layer of depth into <laughs> yeah. this weird little puzzle game. That's awesome. The second thing I love about it is the story. Uh it takes place in the setting where wars have broken out over sushi. There's there's the republic who thinks that sushi should only be enjoyed by like by like an empire, by like a select few, and there's the resistance who think sushi should be enjoyed by all. The war sort of ended with like an empire victory, and uh, the empire has declared sushi illegal to the common people. Uh, <laughs> and your your player character is someone that lost both of their parents in the sushi wars. <laughs> <laughs> it just like. It's it's very tongue in cheek. It has a yeah. story that's very dark and serious, but it realizes how silly it is for this setting to have a story that's dark and serious, and uh, and it's like the funniest damn thing, you know. Just like these characters, like just very seriously saying, it's like sushi isn't about friendship, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> you have like like sort of a rival character. It's like you want to be friends and eat sushi together. I don't understand. Like <laughs> it's so good. It's this it's just the weirdest, silliest little game I've played in a long time, and it just it's such a Nintendo game, it just has this charm to it that I yeah. that I love, that I eat up when I play Nintendo games. I would absolutely recommend this game. I think it's I think it's going to slide under a lot of radars. I think it's gonna be really underrated this year. At this point I could like even though I haven't beaten it yet. I've been playing it at kind of a slow pace. Uh, it's still a great game where I can just like pick up and do a few matches and then put it down again for a while. I I could see it being in like my top ten when we do our game of the year deliberations next year. I think it's worth fifty dollars, but I would understand people waiting, yeah, for, a waiting for a sale. Yeah. It's it's definitely a smaller scale game. You know, it definitely doesn't feel like the kind of game that has a budget that you should spend $50 on. Well, I was excited about the game because it looks like kind of like a cross between Puzzle Quest and uh, oh, Overcooked. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I see which that. Which are two really great games. So yeah. glad that you're having a good time with it. I think that's a game that I would wait till it's on sale to pick up, but yeah. I'll probably play it in the future at some point. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. So another game I've been playing this month is uh, FIFA 18. Um, yeah. They did a really great thing in the lead up to the World Cup where they just made the game free for like a week or something. Uh, uh, they called it a trial, but it was like it was the full game huh. that you could just download and play, which I had to make a lot of space on my PlayStation 4 for because <laughs> it was a 40 gig download. Whoa. Uh, so it actually really was the full game. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and I realized, man, I am close to my to my space limit on the PlayStation 4 through yeah. downloading that I had to delete a lot of uh yeah. a lot of crap i wasn't playing yeah, clear out the fridge clear out the fridge exactly eat that old rice <laughs> uh but you know i think 
EA is a very lazy developer, mm-hmm. um, but I think in their sports franchises, the FIFA franchise, it, they have more pressure to innovate in than they do with Madden. So like Madden yeah. really is a roster refresh, and then like some other de- design decisions from EA, from uh, or rather from FIFA. Uh, right. sometimes cross cross over into Madden, but it's basically huh. the same game every year. Right. And it's not always, it's usually pretty bad. Yeah. I think with the FIFA series, because they face international competition from the PES series, and though Football Manager is a different game and it's not trying to do the same thing, right. I think it basically also puts a little bit of pressure on EA. Okay. Uh, so they often have to iterate and like make interesting decisions and improve the gameplay from, from year to year. Yeah. And I played a couple of matches in FIFA 18 and it felt super smooth and like a really great experience. I'm probably still not going to buy it because, you know, sports games can be just a lot of the time investment. Yeah, sure, And when I'm sure. trying to play other games for the podcast, it can be really hard to dedicate enough time. That's fair. But it was a really enjoyable experience. The only thing that was kind of shitty was like, because it was a really short run trial, it's already over. Um, I hopped into the uh, to the campaign story for a minute. Okay. And the cutscenes are not skippable. So I had to watch like the full like 10 minute cutscene. And like I started it at midnight for some oh. reason because I just finished <laughs> downloading. And I was like, I'm just going to like, you know, ch- t- check out the campaign. Right. And it was like, I couldn't because like the cutscenes took so long. Un- like it showed me the whole story. Unskippable cutscenes in 2018 is kind of absurd. It is, especially because like just make them rewatchable. And then if I ever want to go see it, I can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, man, that's a dumb choice, but, um, just, you know, it seemed like a really solid, uh, FIFA game. And if I was in a different place, I'd probably buy it, but I'm not currently in a, in a position where I'm interested in purchasing it, but I really, really applaud that they made that decision. That was a really cool thing to do. Nice. You know, not just a demo, but like a full trial. Yeah. That was really sweet. Cool. So I also played this puzzle game called Goragoa. It was on sale recently on the switch. So I picked it up and Goragoa's just really interesting. It's this beautifully drawn game where you sort of have, like, these paintings on these four panels, and you can move the paintings around to, like, each different panel. And if you line the paintings up a certain way, sometimes they'll interact with each other. Uh, Sometimes the painting will change depending on which panel you move it to. And it was like playing an interactive piece of art. It tells this, uh, this very interesting, like, sort of overarching story between all these art puzzles you're doing. It tells this sort of story about spirituality and religion. It felt like the kind of game that Jonathan uh, Blow says that he <laughs> makes. Yeah, okay. Right? It's like the kind that of helps. Yeah, it's like the kind of game I understand though. Yeah, it's kind of game that that the creator of Braid said that Braid was. Right. Right? Like you you play Braid and you're like, "Okay, I know what you're going for, but I think you tuned in <laughs> That horn a little too loudly. Goragoa is is beautiful and interesting, and it really shows what interesting things you can do with video games as a medium. I don't have much to say about it besides that. The game is two hours long, so it's not something I feel like I could recommend to you for the podcast right. and do an entire episode about, because I, I think it'd just be ten minutes of us going, yeah, that was that was a really good, really short experience. <laughs> Ta-da! What did you play it on? I played it on the Switch. It might still be like ten bucks right now. Sounds is, like one I'll check out. Then. Yeah, which is worth it. Uh, it's solid. So the last thing I played um, that is worth talking about uh, was the demo for uh, Mario uh, Tennis Strikers. 
Aces? Oh. No, Mario Tennis Aces. Obviously, yeah. Mario Tennis Strikers would be a weird soccer tennis game. But man, I like that. <laughs> yeah, no, that'd be awesome. Anyway, we haven't talked about this on the podcast yet, and I really didn't enjoy it, so I don't want to talk about it for too long. <laughs> um, I thought the demo was uh, unsatisfying. The matchmaking made it um, really, really a chore to play because you, there was no matchmaking. And so when you first started playing, you'd very likely be playing against people who've been playing for like 20 hours. Yes. And they would just own you and you would learn nothing. I've also <laughs> since heard that the campaign is actually really unsatisfying, and the campaign oh, no. was a thing that I was, yeah. I Apparently, a lot of people have been saying, like, it's not like the traditional RPG story campaign that you're used to in a Mario sports game. Yeah. It's like dumb challenges, like hit a ball into a plant's mouth three times. Like, just that over and over and over again. Bummer. I haven't played it myself, so caveat on that, but that's just what I've read from many reputable sources. And I was kind of coming out of that demo hoping that the single-player campaign would be what would save that game for me. Right. After hearing that it's not good, this is probably now not a buy for me. Yeah. Which is interesting, because like, this is one of the games I was most excited for this year. Yeah. I'm probably not even going to buy it now. No, that is interesting. That is really interesting. So instead of talking about that game anymore, I'll just say, go watch Queer Eye. That'll be my final plug in this segment. <laughs> Everyone go watch Queer Eye. It's great television. And Jonathan's the best. If you disagree, you're a terrible person. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I played that demo too, and I, I enjoyed the base gameplay more. Although the, the lack of matchmaking was very frustrating. Like it felt like, it felt like me winning a match would be luck, you know? Yeah. Like especially like because it sort of did this thing where you would progress on a tournament ladder. Yeah. If, uh, if you won, you'd move to the next spot on the ladder. If you lost the match, you'd start back at the beginning. And which also, by the way, like terrible design there. If you lost the match, you had to go all the way back to the main menu. You couldn't just re-enter a new tournament. Yeah. Like, they should have just made it so that you could just re-enter a new tournament when you lost. So you could just save time and play the game more. Yeah. Terrible design. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was frustrating. And like the fact that any match you played could be against someone who was playing their first match. Right. Or someone who had played a thousand matches. Right. It didn't like it didn't matter. It didn't like it didn't filter that at all. So but, I so I didn't win a tournament, but there was one point where I got to like the semifinals just because I managed to fight a bunch of people in a row who sucked. Right. Uh I won a couple of matches because the server crashed and I was in the lead. So I, <laughs> I won by default. I that's actually kinda nice. Like that that's actually kinda nice that if someone like rage quits on you and you're in the lead, they're like, Oh, you won. But there were a couple that like it, it crashed like as the game started. Right. So I don't think they were always rage quitting, but often they I'm sure they, they sometimes were. Yeah, no, I, I mean like I didn't yeah, I wasn't saying necessarily that your your matches were but rage yeah, quitting. That, that's that, that's a cool anti rage quit mechanic. That is. I do I, like that. I agree with you. But there was like this thing that would happen in the game where um so you slowly unlocked characters by playing. Yeah. And if I saw a certain character, I would be like well, I'm just gonna lose. Yeah, What's yeah, the point exactly. Of even trying? Yeah, it's like, like <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, oh no, they have Rosalina, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> it's like they played way more of this than me. I've barely unlocked Waluigi, uh, right? Which is the first character. You yeah, yeah. I, I think I managed to unlock Toad, who was mm. like the second character, and then the demo ended. That's enough talking about that game. Is there another game you want to talk about before we start talking about Psychonauts? Um, one thing that was cool about E3. A couple of like there are actually a good amount of like shadow drops and like yeah. and like demo releases like on E3 week and one was the the new Octopath Traveler demo and basically what the Octopath Traveler demo is is it's just the first three hours of the full game then it saves your progress and you can carry it over to the full which release. is a great way to do a demo yeah I know that you weren't really feeling Octopath Traveler when you yeah. played yeah when you played the first demo I think this 
would be a much better demonstration of whether or not you'd like that game. First of all, you get to pick any of the eight characters in the roster. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, you get to pick... Oh, the game really is like Live Alive, isn't it? Oh! <laughs> I'm so... It's Square Enix's Live Alive. Yeah, it's, it's definitely different because um, uh, Live Alive is sort of like self-contained stories right, that right. don't that don't merge together until the very no. end. It's not a remake, but it's yeah. obviously inspired by Yeah, that definitely takes a takes a lot of cues from Live Alive, yeah. You get to pick any of those characters at the start, and uh, I know you played Ulbricht's story and you weren't very interested in that, but I think some of these other characters and sort of the things that they have going on uh might be more more interesting from both a story and a gameplay perspective. So who would you recommend you. I try? I started as Tressa the Merchant and that was actually like like a fun experience. Like I, I was able to like buy items from like any NPC, and she's she's a cool character with a fun story. But I think uh, <laughs> I think a character that might be more fun for you is Cyrus the Scholar, who is another character that I sort of unlocked later because he has an ability called Scrutinize, where he can kind of like look at a townsperson and find out what their deal is, like find out their history. And he can also do with a sort of like suss out mysteries. I actually, he actually has like almost like a, like a kind of a Phoenix Wright ish mini game where he sort of like, well, I do love Phoenix, Wright. Yeah. Where he like connects clues together to like find out what to do next in the story. And that was neat. And also just like a lot of the general mechanics in the game that just weren't in the first demo get unlocked. Like there's a skill system now. And like, that's cool. Yeah. I, I already thought that it was promising when I played the first... Uh, yeah, like, yeah. let me be clear that I recognize that I'm the odd man in this situation. <laughs> Everyone I've talked to who's played this this game or played the demo for this game has, like, been super hyped for it. Yeah. So I recognize that I'm the weirdo. You don't have to justify that. <laughs> no, that's, that's, like, <laughs> that's, that's okay, but, like, I see even more the quality game that it is after the second demo. And, like, I really saw where you were coming from when you didn't like the first demo too much. Uh, I think this sort of answers some of the complaints and some of the questions that cool. you had. I'll yeah. give it another shot, especially knowing that now if I do like it, it'll save the progress. That is a great thing that for demos to do. I think Bravely yeah. Default also did that. Um, sort of. Bravely Default had a standalone story, but would give you rewards in the oh, full okay, game. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that was different, but but still, but still cool. I still like that demo too. Yeah. So yeah, those are the games we've been playing and the queers we've been eyeing. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> no, that's I, real good, buddy. Yeah, that's, I, that's not how that sentence <laughs> started when I started. Uh, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> real good. So the queer eye I've been watching on Netflix. <laughs> okay. Um, but uh, yeah, now let's uh, let's finally talk about Psychonauts. Not like we've been delaying this for any reason. <laughs> so to back up, Psychonauts was a game uh, recommended to us by uh, Cody D. Uh, Cody with a K. So our last episode, we uh, brought out a new thing, which was that we were going to take audience recommendations yeah. uh, for the next game we were playing. 
as you may remember, if you listened to that episode, at first we thought we we're going to be playing Hollow Knight because it was recommended <laughs> to us. We both really wanted to play it. And we were promised it was already out on the Switch. <laughs> and at the time was not out on the Switch. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's also our bad. We did not do our research yeah, before we no, selected let's, it. No, let's blame ourselves. There. <laughs> uh, that's fair. We, we should take the blame on that one. Uh, so we did a last minute switch to Psychonauts, which, um, you know, Daniel did some wonderful, uh, voice editing to make it sound <laughs> like he was just saying it in the episode. Hey, thank you. Uh, I, I thought that went really seamlessly. Psychonauts. Uh, so that's the game we ended up playing. And, you know, let's, let's be open and honest and transparent for a minute here. <laughs> Part of the reason that this uh, episode is so delayed is because Daniel and I both have had busy months. Yes. We knew that was going to be true going in, which is why we actually asked for audience recommendations this go around. Yeah. Um, I think both of our months ended up being a little bit busier than we anticipated. Yes. But also, (laughs) we both played an hour of Psychonauts separately and immediately texted each other and knew we were in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Now... This is uh, a point I want to tread carefully because I do want to remain grateful. Daniel and I are both super humbled yeah. by how many audience recommendations we received. Yeah. We take that, we took that process and take that process really seriously. Yeah. And, you know. And, and I do, I do th- want to say that regardless of what we say over the next bit of this podcast, <laughs> I do think genuinely that Psychonauts was a great recommendation. Oh yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's, I agree. I, I think it's a great game to discuss on this podcast yes. and there's a lot about it to talk about. So I am, yes. I am really glad that we played it. I'm really glad it was recommended to us. And I would echo that wholeheartedly. And I will also say, though it's obvious from how we're entering this conversation, neither of us enjoyed this game. <laughs> there are positives that we're going to talk about in yeah. this conversation, but I do think most of this conversation is going to be us discussing the things we didn't like and maybe why Psychonauts doesn't hold up. So with all of that preamble out of the way, let's just start talking about Psychonauts the game. So Psychonauts is a game that was designed, um, developed by uh, Double Fine Productions, which is uh, Tim Schafer's uh, development company. Uh, the first game that Double Fine developed under that yeah. uh, under that publisher name, yeah. It struck out on his own. Tim Schafer is the name that we've mentioned on this podcast, I think, a few times before, because he was one of the early uh, game writers for uh, the LucasArts games. Yeah. Um, he designed parts or wrote all of some of the following, including um, Monkey Island, Day, uh, Day Tentacle. Tentacle, which is one of my favorite games of yeah. all time, um, Grim Fandango. Uh, Full Throttle. Full Throttle. Um, so he has a storied career, uh, and Double Fine has made news recently because, you know, well, in recent years, comparative to Psychonauts, because yeah. they were really the first big Kickstarter yeah. uh, backing that ever happened. Right. Um, they uh, made a game or, you know, promised to make a game called Broken Age yeah. that they uh, put out on Kickstarter, I don't know, five, six years ago. Yeah, maybe even more than that. Um, and it broke records at the time, I believe, for a Kickstarter right. project. It ended up going into like the millions, like one the million. Yeah, yeah, one point four million, which was huge at the time. at the time. Yeah, and it became a, a somewhat of a cautionary tale in backing uh, <laughs> in crowdsourcing because uh, the game eventually did come out, but it had big delays. They ended up even breaking it into two games, which kind of ruined the momentum for me. I, oh, I never yeah. even played the second half of Broken Age. I, and I enjoyed the first half. Yeah, I I played about an hour of part two of Broken Age. Just the fact that, like, the momentum had been killed. I hadn't played Broken Age in about a year. Right. And <laughs> I played about an hour, and I just couldn't stay hooked. So. No. 
yeah, me either. But all of this is to say, there's a little bit of historical context in that Daniel and I are in general fans of Tim Schafer games. Uh, Curse of Monkey Island is one is yeah. the the series is really one of Daniel's favorite series of all time. Yeah, I have a a, a deep love of Day of the Tentacle. Uh, but Psychonauts is a game that came out originally in 2005, I believe. It came yes. out for the um, Xbox, uh, Microsoft systems, and yeah. um, MPS2. MPS2. Uh, and it was published by a different company, but then uh, Double Fine got the rights back, yeah. and they put out the remastered version, which we both played on PlayStation 4. Um, actually, well, it's not really a remaster, I guess. Yeah, uh, uh, the PS4 uh, version is actually just a emulation of the PS2. Version. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Could I have used the remaster. Yeah, I actually played the PC version that has. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, I thought we played it on the same system for some reason. Nah, I, I played oh, okay. it. Yeah, I played it on Steam, which does have uh, some resolution bumps and uh, a couple of slight changes that I'll that I'll mention as we get into this discussion. And just also for context, did you play a keyboard or mouse, or did you play with the controller? I played with the controller. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So in Psychonauts, you uh, play as Raz, a uh, young boy who is in a sleepaway camp for uh, psychics, yeah. for children who have psychic abilities. And uh, it's, you quickly discover that Raz is very potent in his in his abilities. And yeah. uh, he starts learning more from the teachers in kind of like unsanctioned ways yeah. uh, that aren't really necessarily part of the uh, camp. Yeah. And you start to unravel a mystery as the the your fellow campers are losing their brains yeah. and you are, are out on a mission to stop the bad guy and get everyone's brains back yeah that's kind of a spoiler free breakdown of the story of the game yeah um and our spoiler free impressions are already pretty clear um <laughs> neither daniel nor i loved this game um we'll talk more about this later but i got very close to beating it before giving up out of frustration um <laughs> daniel pushed through that frustration and did end up beating it yeah um and those are our spoiler free experiences <laughs> um, i'm not necessarily super concerned about spoilers in a game that came out from a game that came out in 2005 right um but daniel anything else you want to say before we start talking about the game more in depth yeah i think that there is actually a lot to love about this game a lot a lot of moments and parts of this game that i really enjoyed and actually, I think the best way to put it is this is the most this is the most disparate experience I've ever had with a video game. Sure. I've I've never liked a story of a game so much while disliking its gameplay so much. I would agree with that. Um a hundred percent. The game is almost unplayable. <laughs> yeah, like it like one one thing I actually sort of looked up because I was trying to be like, okay, like don't uh, try try not to judge it just because it hasn't aged very well. Right. Um, but it's not that it hasn't aged very well. It's that it's a 2005 game using a 1996 genre, the yeah. the collectathon platformer. Right. Right. It's like r really like that that genre peaked with Banjo Tooie, and then they stopped <laughs> doing it. You know, like right. like the the PS2, GameCube, Xbox generation didn't really do didn't really do that genre anymore and then psychonaut shows up four years into that generation is like look at this it already does that and then it comes out it comes out after games like resident evil 4 metal gear solid 3 and half-life 2 right. and it feels older than those oh, it games feels generation older than all those yeah games. yeah this game came out of the n64 i believe you <laughs> yeah this might be like from a mechanics and and game design perspective this might be the worst game i've played that i've enjoyed 
Right, which is a really weird sentence to parse, but I agree with you. Yeah. Well, I don't think in the end I enjoyed it, but, like, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, like, like, yeah, like, the worst game I've played that I've liked things about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, you know, like, I've obviously played, like, some shovelware nonsense that is just bad. Well, you bad keep playing and... Yu-Gi-Oh, so. <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh's great. <laughs> the, I've played games that are just bad all across the board, but this is a game with some genuine high qualities and some some really innovative things and some things that made me smile. And I've never played a game that has done all those things and still been a bad video game right. to this level. I think one of the things that, that Psychonauts highlights for me is how far we've come with indies specifically and yeah. how like the, the, the gap in resources is so much easier crossed these days by yeah. like the general rise and the, the capability of technology. Yeah. You, you know, this being double fine's first game as a studio it makes sense that it that it plays like a game on a on a generation old engine. Yeah, it's just now when a studio has a first game like this, the playing field is so much more flat. Yeah, that the resources aren't necessarily as limiting as they used to be. Right, and I mean monetary resources, not you know console resources, obviously. Right, right, and that's just really highlighted for me in this in this game because so much of the frustration comes from it just not aging well. Which is an indication of its position as an indie game of the time. Right. And like a studio's first game. Yeah. They're not a designer's first game. Right. Like, I I think if I'd played this in 2005, I, I think I'd be a little easier yes. on it. Um, but I think I'd have a lot of the same complaints. I agree with you. Yeah, and I think that's a fair context to provide for the conversation that, like, we obviously can't know, but... I think one of the things that I said to you uh, over text when we were still in the early days of this game is that without nostalgia, this game is useless. <laughs> like, obviously, our experience with this game is going to be very different than someone who played it as a kid and loved it and remembers it with that kind of golden haze. Right. You know, who's to say how we would have felt about it had we played it as our 2005-year-old selves right. when we were quick math 18? Yeah. But it's hard to imagine experiencing this game and never not being frustrated by the gameplay yeah yeah now like uh when i was playing like uh my girlfriend amy and my roommate sean both uh both watched me play significant portions of this game yeah and sean for those of you who don't know him is a is a very patient dude and a dude who sort of unless it's about board games <laughs> or heihachi for no good reason <laughs> <laughs> watch a Smashing Theory for that context. Yeah, everybody. watch it. The television show, Smashing Theory. Yeah, listen, listen in. Um, but when it when it comes to games that have kind of jank to them and and have major flaws, he's he's very good at being patient and looking past those flaws and enjoying the positives of that game. Um, when he watched me play through Psychonauts, like he was like. I would not have the patience to beat this game. Yeah. Is what he said. This has also been Stephanie's least favorite game to watch me play. <laughs> Though she's been in and out a lot for it, but uh, you know, I think that has more to do with how random and and unfollowable the story is at times. Uh-huh. And I don't think she likes the design either, but that's a different thing. Yeah, Amy Lee uh clocked out about an hour <laughs> into my play session. Yeah. She she just like got on her phone and like some of these games that I play, she's like, Hey, can you 
can you play more of this when I'm home? And I'm like, yeah, this that was not a necessity for Psychonauts. Playing Psychonauts, especially early, it, this lessens as the game picks up steam. But playing Psychonauts early is like watching an old cartoon from when you were a kid. And you <laughs> didn't remember how many pauses there were in old cartoon shows. Yeah. Like, that they were just waiting for like the kids' attention span to catch up with the show. <laughs> they were like, giving those breathing moments for like the kids to like think about 17 things. Right. And then like, think about the joke. And yeah. like, if you ever watch an old kid show, like they're very pause heavy and like labored yeah and psychonauts feels like that from the start like it's a <laughs> real slow game uh starting up in my opinion huh, interesting um, and like i think the comparison i made was like playing psychonauts is like watching ducktales which yeah, like, if you yeah, haven't watched ducktales since you were a kid go back and watch that show and tell me it's not bad <laughs> it's a bad show yeah. And I loved it as a kid, but it's a bad show. Yeah, no, like, actually, like, it has a lot in common with DuckTales. You know, uh, initially charming, but poorly paced, hasn't aged well, and you wish you were watching Darkwing Duck instead. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been nibbling around the meat of this issue, but let's get, let's, let's dive in. Let's yeah. cut this steak wide open. I don't know what this analogy is, <laughs> but just run with it. Ooh, steak. Yeah, now I've got your attention. Yeah. Um, so let's start talking uh, about narrative, which is actually one of the game's, you know, stronger suits. So oh, let's, yeah. let's start there and, and our experiences with the narrative of this game. So just diving in a little bit further, like we said, uh, you play as this boy named Rasputin who, um, is a runaway from uh, the circus and he's come to this summer camp for psychic children. And you have these three instructors who are adults and they start teaching you more about how to be a psychic and you kind of unlock various psychic abilities throughout the game. Yeah. Um, And you soon realize that um, the brains of your compatriots are being stolen and they're walking around like brainless zombies, just saying TV over and over again, which is (laughs) a a fairly obvious uh, criticism of the American joke childhood um but uh it quickly becomes well not quickly but it becomes clear eventually that the uh teacher kind of perpetrating this is the very first one you meet uh, whose name is blank is escaping my Uh, my memory at this point oleander yeah chief oleander general oleander uh i think he's general was it commander commander oleander i'm gonna call him general oleander because that's what it is in my head okay you can great take it or leave it sure uh (laughs) (laughs) uh, so general oleander has been stealing these children's brains through uh his lackey Dr. Lobotomo? Dr. Lobato. Dr. Lobato. Yeah. Yeah. A little on the nose there. Mm -hmm. Um, And it becomes your job to uh, get the brains back. And the way you do this is by jumping into the psyches of various people around the camp um, and fixing their psyches for them by tackling their id and their ego and all of their problems. Yeah. um, Which uh, ends up being pretty cool a lot of the time. Like, I think what the game does best when it's at its strongest is when it's kind of like this very Tim Schafer (laughs) classic kind of diagnosis of the human condition. Yeah. And like all of the different ways that our experiences as people can kind of linger and haunt us. Yeah. And it's Raz's job to go in and help people sort that out. Yes. Man. I really loved the concept of this game, right. and the setting was great. Uh, it really was just just a great blueprint for all these really cool set pieces that we got to experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a really good way to put it. The the game, the framework of this game, just feels like like each of it's just like there to yeah. to give you these various set pieces. Yeah, I, I kind of though we're, since we're talking about narrative, I kind of didn't always feel like, especially early on a connection to the story. Yeah. I kind of felt like the story was unfolding just kind of rapidly without me having any part in it. Uh, Yeah. And there's, 
it just does this thing sometimes where it just assumes you're on the same page and jumps yes. to the next part. Like the game doesn't explain very much at all. Yeah. Um. I think the most jarring, the the most I noticed this happen was a bit where during the second segment of the game, your love interest Lily gets captured, and you track her down to this insane asylum right. with a bunch of its patients there, and you start by, like, befriending a lungfish who, like, takes you to where Lily is, and for, like, the first half hour that you're there, it's not really clear you're at an insane asylum, but the game kind of assumes you realize you are there. Right. Uh, and all of the people who are in this insane asylum, who you start interacting with, there's no acknowledgement of their existence in the universe. Like, yeah. it was never hinted at. Yeah, yeah. It was never explained. Yeah. It just feels like there's an assumption <laughs> yeah. that, like, you're either going to, like, know intuitively what this place is yes. or just be okay with not knowing. Yeah. No, I definitely felt, like, the first thing. It, it felt like, like, yeah, like, half an hour into, like, the asylum uh, leg of the adventure, like, they mention it's an asylum and it's in a way that it's like, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't know? Like, right. you, like, and, and not in, like, a, not in, like, a, like, a funny way, like, as a joke, like, it's... It's just like the game just assumed that you knew it was an asylum this whole time. There's also this this thing that happened for me, maybe it didn't happen for you, where like it took me like maybe half of the game, which is like five or six hours in, yeah. until I wasn't just doing things because I was doing them. Like it, it took me about that long to figure out why I was doing anything I was doing. Hmm. Like the game went from just being like, oh, you're Raz, you're a kid who's in this psychic camp and you're trying to learn more about psychic abilities to you're saving all of your friends brains right. and like that line was never so there was never very clearly delineated yeah you're just like doing things and then eventually one of the things you do brings you on this adventure yeah but there's never any like strong jumping off point or clear demarcation of that yeah yeah like you just keep doing tasks and eventually the task becomes the story that that's not a that's not a bad way to put it although like I sort of saw some of the driving force, right? Like you, you're sort of like in this brain tumbler experiment, and and like the implication is that you're exploring your own mind, uh, but then it turns out that like other people's consciousnesses are sort of affecting that and showing like you end up experiencing some of Dogen's mind and some of Lobato's mind, and it uses that to sort of like set up the the brain stealing thing. Dogen is like this the short little green boy who's who's kind of dumb and very unstable and. And one of the gags is that he just murders a bunch of squirrels, and it's supposed to like it's, it's supposed to be cute, but it it was it was just like it was like wow, this that, that that was more violent than I was expecting yeah. from Tim, <laughs> right? Um, but <laughs> basically, like Dogen is the first character to get his brain stolen, and you sort of you have a vision of this in the brain tumbler experiment, but none of that is made very clear. No, that's the thing. It's yeah. not. There's no clarity. Yeah, yeah. Like when when I saw that Dogen had his brain get taken. Like, Raz already knew. Like, Raz, the character, was aware that, oh, other people's consciousnesses entered his mind somehow, and he was able to sort of have a vision of Dogen getting his brain stolen. But Raz never filled me in on this. No, right. <laughs> so, so I was confused. It's like, how did this happen inside Raz's mind? Like, why, like, are these characters getting taken into Raz's mind to get there? Like, it took me, like, a while of... Of characters just casually dropping information for me to sort it out. Yes. And the game's not that long. So yeah. it's like... Yeah. Uh, the pacing felt completely off. Yes. Yeah. No, there, there were definitely some pacing issues. One thing that sort of ties into the narrative, actually, is the fact that, like, 
initially, it makes kind of a big deal about Raz's friendship with Dogen. Now, Dogen is the first character (laughs) that sort of attaches himself to Raz and befriends Raz. And Raz pledges to Dogen that he will get Dogen's brain back and bring it to him. Now, uh, this is kind of going to slide into mechanics talk a little bit. No, sure, bring it in. Uh, While you're climbing the mansion, while you're you're climbing the asylum and, and, and finding people's brains scattered throughout as as collectibles uh you find dogen's brain like near the end of this trek of this trip and 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 generally like at any time you can leave you can leave the asylum deliver these brains back to these children and and put them back in their heads and have them uh be functioning again like by the time i had gotten dogen's brain i was really high up in the asylum so it's like okay cool they'll like i'm sure once i get to the top there will there will be a way for me to get back down and go back to the camp and give everyone their brains back. Uh, wh- what happens when you get to the top of the asylum is a bunch of uh, a bunch of story happens, and then with no option no option to go back to camp, the asylum explodes and you fight a boss, and then an autosave informs you that this is a point of no return. There's no like you are about to reach a point of no return. Would you like to go back to camp? It's just autosaving point of no return. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and they 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 clearly realized that they had kind of done that because uh, when you get to the entrance of the meat circus, there's a fortune teller you can turn in all your collected stuff to. Yes, so you can still turn in all that stuff. Yeah, but, but you can't like hand deliver it to Dogen. Yeah, exactly. So basically, giving Dogen back his brain in person and getting to see the cutscene that reunites them is optional in this game that made a big deal out of their friendship at the beginning of the story. So are there cutscenes if you take those brains back to each child? Yes. Oh, because I didn't do that. Yeah, you. Uh, I was just powering through at that point. Oh man, yeah. For uh, if you go back to camp for every uh, for every brain that you bring back, there's there's a cutscene of Raz talking to that student, oh, fuck and that. the and the student like either thanking them or being a dick or you know like you you just yeah Raz gets a one on one with a student with every student whose brain he gets back except for Dogen's uh well no including Dogen if oh if you were to backtrack if, yeah all the if way, right. if I turned around gone all the way back down See, the asylum and then hand delivered it that way yeah if I had done that I would have gotten that cut well, you can just look it up on YouTube I could yeah I didn't even think about hand delivering the brains because. To, to bring in the mechanics a little bit, the platforming was so bad in this game that I was not about to climb that asylum again. Yeah. Like, it it took way longer than it should have. And I'll talk about this more when we get to that section. But, like, right. I wasn't about to, to invest that amount of time in this game. Yeah. Bringing back the brains was also a way to increase your health. Which then you do that when you talk to the fortune teller. So you yeah. get it at the end anyway. Yeah, you get it at the end. But it was nice to have it in the middle, too. Sure, that's or, fair. And, like, With the middle end. fucking rats. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Oh, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but like that that part was very that part's worth talking about. Yeah, so so therefore the pacing was really weird. Sometimes the story will put a lot of stock in something early yeah. on, and experiencing the payoff of that is optional later. Yeah. Or something you just don't experience, or something they don't go back to. Exactly. There's a lot of great story and great character detail in this game. One of your instructors, uh Mia, her her brain is a dance party uh that you go into. And, you know, your goal is to get to the end of the dance party and dance with your instructor. And then she gives you the ability to levitate. Uh, this game's weird. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, going through her mind, she's a very energetic, very fun-loving character who's very, like, laid back and, and loves having a good time and and wants to wants to be famous and wants to be on TV. Like, a very optimistic character. After beating this game... 
Amy actually, uh, she she did kind of start investing herself in the later part, like you know, in, in like the last leg. Once it started picking up. Yeah, and uh, she she looked some stuff up about the game after I beat it. She told me a part of Mia's arc that I did not experience at all. There's a hidden room in Mia's brain. Really? That basically informs you that she used to own an orphanage, but the orphanage burned down oh, and Jesus. all of the all of the kids in that orphanage died under her watch. Ooh. She lives with that trauma and she puts forth this fun loving, dance loving persona to sort of to sort of bury that and 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 cope with that. She lives carefree to sort of ignore this tragedy that happened in her life. And if you find this hidden room, you see like all these children like on fire, like oh my God. like like calling out to, to Mia like to save them, but she can't because this is her memory of of losing them. That's fucked up. And I neither of us ever saw this no, part of the did, game. Where was that? I'm I'm not sure. It was just a hidden room in her mind. Hmm. Uh that also like has a vault like tucked in there that sort of explains that she loses those kids by ending the orphanage. But like a lot of characters actually have basically hidden details about themselves like that. Like there, there's this woman who like loves, loves theater and used to be a famous actress. And, you know, she has a lot of parental issues that she's sort of holding on, which to. is one of the themes of the game. Yeah. Like I found, I found her hidden stuff and it turns out that, a lot of her baggage is that her mother committed suicide. Right. But, like, these details are, like, tucked away in little corners that you could never reasonably find. I get since this is a collect-a-thon game to have rewards for sort of poking around in every nook and cranny um, and finding every collectible. On on some level, I I understand the logic there, but, like, such major narrative details being hidden content like that is frustrating. I feel like I miss a lot of context on Mia because I didn't feel like finding every... Well, uh, that's the real issue. Yeah. Because, like, you know, what is important narrative content is really up to the designer, and if they're hiding it, then they're saying it's less important. But right. that only works if your game is fun to play and you want to explore. The <laughs> yeah. problem is neither of us wanted to explore. We wanted to just get the game over with. Yeah. Because the game isn't fun to play. So if yeah. you're going to have hidden content and all this... And all this bonus extra content yeah. that you have to play yeah. to find, yeah. and your game has to be fun to play. Yeah. It and can't be a chore. Yes. And and yeah, that's that's the thing. I feel like I'd be I'd be less frustrated about this if I were motivated right. to to do all this. But like I I guess the game also never tells you that that you get such major narrative details by exploring. Right. You know? Right. The yeah. I had a feeling in some cases, like, okay, cool, like the first vault you open is sort of them on the surface, and it looks like I'm poking around the menus and see that I can find more vaults. I bet the bigger vaults sort of have their secrets, but it's still the fact that I had to find that out from a wiki. Yeah, um, like that's that's a cool detail, man. That's that's a cool, sad, right. messed up thing that makes me a much more interesting character. Right. I, yeah, I agree with what you're saying, but again, like this wouldn't be a problem if the game was fun to play. <laughs> yeah, if you were incentivized or encouraged to explore not because of story but because like it's fun to do yeah we wouldn't be talking about this because we would have explored yeah. yeah but the game is a chore to play and so therefore we're not like looking for the bonus content because it's just not worth it yeah and also like the visuals don't help it's hard to the game is like kind yeah. of dark and it, it, well, we'll talk about this when we get to presentation yeah. but like it looks like an old game yeah. and sometimes it's hard to tell what's a secret room and what's just like a weird texture right yeah like the game even looked a little better to me because i was playing the pc version right but like 
the camera refuses to cooperate. Oh my God, with the camera you. was terrible. Yeah, even even when like the textures make sense, the camera like I feel like half the content I missed, I missed because the camera never even implied to me that that's a corner I could walk into. Yeah, or that like I died a bunch of times because of the camera. Yeah, bad camera. Yeah, no, that was a that was a rough camera. You know, and I'm I'm thinking I I bet that like Mia's secret room is probably behind a cobweb. Oh um, uh, yeah, probably it's behind a cobweb when we didn't have the duster at that point. Yeah, uh, there's. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> That's a good point. That's probably where it's hidden. Yeah. So getting back to the narrative, and I think one of the things we both agree is the game's strong suit, probably the game's singular strong suit, is the writing. And yes. specifically the dialogue. Yeah. Uh, and for anyone who is familiar with Tim Schafer, this comes as no surprise. Yeah. Um, Tim Schafer is known for his witty, irreverent, smart dialogue that, like, sheds light on the human condition while making a throwaway joke yeah and that mm-hmm. is definitely on display a lot of the time in psychonauts yes um i think most notable rather than talking about the whole game yeah i think most notable for most for both of us was the milkman conspiracy uh-huh um so that is one of the psyches you go into um it's actually how you get into the asylum there's this guy walking around outside the asylum he's like um, kind of a security guard yeah he's kind yeah. of a security guard like milkman guy yeah and uh you need to go into a psych and help fix him and when you get in there it's like a kind of a takedown of you know white picket fence 1950s americana yeah um there's like girl scouts and government agents hiding you know behind bushes yeah and you need to blend into the neighborhood yes essentially so that you can progress and there were just a lot of moments in that where like throwaway lines the government agents would say were (laughs) very funny yeah and kind of that whole dystopian take on americana yeah was really well pulled off the the government agents were definitely like a highlight like basically you'd have a bunch of agents like pretending to do these mundane tasks they would sort of announce that they're doing these mundane tasks like uh you know it's like i trimmed the hedges these leaves grow at a very alarming rate like you know like <laughs> yeah these kind of banal comments <laughs> yes yeah. of these guys trying to quote unquote blend in yes yeah um it was very funny yeah, and I think the design of all of the asylum psyches were like the strong suit of the game. Yes. Um, but in the Milkman conspiracy, like the way that you had this kind of MC Escher take on like a on just an American suburb. Yeah. And like how the 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 road curved in on itself and yeah. everything was distorted. It was a really great visual metaphor. Yes. Um for and I think visual metaphor is one of the game's strong suits also. Oh yeah. Definitely. And it was just like this was a highlight of the game. Yeah. And a world that kind of highlighted that highlight. Yeah. So that's the positive side of Tim Schafer design. <laughs> well, um yeah, I I also think that like that that second half of the game had some of like the game's greatest one-liners and some of the like so like some of the coolest settings like you said. There's one guy who who's in the asylum because he he lost a strategy game and he's he's a descendant of Napoleon Bonaparte. Uh Fred Bonaparte <laughs> uh like basically gets a complex about losing has Napoleon Bonaparte manifest as a personality in his head and you have to go into his head and and basically help Fred win a game of strategy against Napoleon Bonaparte and they're like yeah. playing a board game together and you sort of like help him move the pieces around and stuff by basically navigating the game board on all these different fields like sometimes you're the size of one of the pieces sometimes you're which was a confusing mechanic to figure out by the way oh yeah no that no that was a that was a pain to navigate when the game was not telling me how to navigate. No, they, they did not give you enough instructions in that game. Yeah, absolutely not. But it had like some of my favorite one-liners. Like 
like one of the enemy soldiers like smashes a bridge and they're just saying like in a French accent, like, I hate you bridge. I hate you so much. <laughs> you know, uh, there's, there's a funny bit where like you try to recruit a carpenter by like actually like asking the carpenter to help you to fix the bridge that the French soldier smashed. Yes. To fix the bridge. And the carpenter's like, you're a burglar, aren't you? I hear, I hear you up on my roof every night trying to break in, but I, but I've got a fire going in my chimney. So if you jump down there, you'll, you'll be lit up. So I'm, I'm on to you, burglar. And, you know, right? like, I'm not a burglar. I'm, I'm asking you for help. And then later you recruit someone else. You recruit like a different peasant. Uh, and the peasant's like, I need a weapon. If you want to recruit me, you give him the weapon and he goes, yes, great. I can finally rob that carpenter. I've been up on his roof every day, but his chimney's always lit up. So I can't get down there. Uh, it's a great little callback. Yes, it is. Um, no, a lot of, a lot of funny deliveries and good jokes, good paybacks on jokes. Definitely some high quality Tim Schafer writing peppered throughout this game. And the visual design of those levels was really great. Yeah. You know, they're still a pain in the ass to play because the mechanics didn't, didn't work. Right. Uh, specifically in the, in the Fred Bonaparte, um, psyche, those cannon snails were so annoying. Yeah. Um, I, I was able to like, if you go up and you hit them, you can then telekinesis them into the water. And yeah, they won't you can also you. light them on fire once you hit them, which I learned later. On. Oh, I didn't. But yeah. they would fire at you from so far away. Yes, and sometimes you didn't even realize they were firing at you. Yeah, that also was one of the worlds that I I had a lot of trouble uh, navigating the, the platforming on. Uh, that final bit when you're trying to unjam the drawbridge. Oh, you yeah. You gotta, like, traverse up the castle. Yes. That was some really frustrating platforming. And I oh, no. I did that one, like, for maybe 30 minutes. Yeah. No, just like, that one bit. Yeah. The, the fact that the, the controls of the game aren't amazing and your jumps and your physics aren't always consistent. Ugh, yeah. So when the game demands that sometimes you do some very precise platforming, boy, boy, was it tough to stay in that game during like during legs like that that specific situation is is when i eventually quit the game a little bit further but we'll talk yeah. about that when we get there yeah <laughs> so i mean ultimately i think the point we're trying to make is like progressing through the psyches in the asylum is probably the strongest part of the game yes it's when the game shines the most those kind of like those four psyches you do in the asylum yeah uh, from the milkman on up and they highlight the strengths of this first game by double fine uh yeah. tim schafer's writing yeah. the world building the uh art the aesthetic design yeah yeah um all super super high where the game doesn't work <laughs> and this is also not necessarily uncommon for tim schafer games yeah. is in the gameplay itself yeah uh you know we've kind of hinted at it a couple times <laughs> we've even outright said it but the major flaw in psychonauts is that the mechanics just aren't good yeah um Daniel, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about the consistency of the platforming. Yeah. The fact that you never know exactly what you're going to collide with. Yeah. Um, you never know exactly what your jump is going to do or when it's going to do it. Yeah. There's no consistency in the double jump. Um, there's not even really consistency in using your psychic powers. Yeah. Uh, that is a really frustrating and difficult experience. And it it plays itself out not just in navigating the world, but in like tackling these various psyches. Yeah. Um, because they're so dependent on the mechanics. They're all basically puzzle platformers with then like some boss elements added on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you can't 
easily if you can't easily navigate a puzzle then you never know if you're failing at the puzzle or if you're just not doing it correctly and i think one of the most frustrating things in video games at least for me is when i know what the solution is and i know how to do it yeah but i can't and not because i'm bad and i'm a bad gamer but not because <laughs> i'm bad because i don't know what the game is going to do when i input a button right and like the comparison i would make here that i just kind of thought of is in thinking about super mario odyssey there right. are a couple of those bonus levels that are very hard right and like some of it's because 3d platforming will never be perfect with perspective and you just never really know exactly where you're gonna land right but ultimately like there are levels i've died on in super mario odyssey like upwards of 50 times yeah and each time i knew it was because i was doing something wrong right yes and in psychonauts it's not the case that i'm always doing something wrong yeah sometimes it's the game's doing something wrong and like i have landed on that ledge yeah but it slipped me off yes or i have done done a double jump but it didn't register the double jump yeah yeah and that experience in a game that has very tight windows yeah um is boy it gets the heart going yeah (laughs) and not in a good way yeah no actually it's it's funny like one of the final bosses in the game actually yeah. is like basically like this big lumbering character who like when they slam their fist down on the floor they they like their arm gets stuck right and i i look at them like oh maybe i can like jump on his arm and then like get onto his shoulder and like hit him so i tried that i like jumped onto his arm and i fell off of his arm so i'm like you know i, I jumped right in his arm and then i slid off so i'm like okay the game doesn't want me to do that i'll try to find out other solutions <laughs> so i tried for like 10 minutes and then uh, one thing that is kind of nice is that uh, if an enemy is doing their pattern over and over and you haven't figured out how to hit them yet, uh, there's sort of an instructor character who, like, gives you hints. Right. Right? Like, he'll he'll pipe in with hints. So, like, then he pipes in. He's like, you got to jump on his arm and then jump on his shoulder so you can punch <laughs> him in the face. I'm like, I did that. I didn't think you were letting me do that. So, like, so then I did it, and yeah, you just have to jump on a certain part of his arm so well, you don't slide off, and then onto his shoulder. Not to make you too angry, but um, th- I had given up by that point, and so I watched a Let's Play the rest of the game. Right, uh, yeah. And the person who I watched Let's Play of just used the levitation ball to jump higher. Right. And then didn't try jumping up the arm. Yeah, I, I tried that, too. Oh, that didn't work for Yeah, you. like, I use a levitation ball, but, like, you lose sort of some precision of control when you yes. do the levitation ball. It's very floaty. So... So like actually there there was a point where I used a levitation ball and I didn't land square enough on his oh, shoulder so I slid off there so I'm like oh that definitely can't right, be it right 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 uh yeah that's that's one of those frustrating things when we talk about the the gameplay mechanics that like learning how to play a game especially a game that's a platformer is about iteration it's about yeah. trying something with the tools you have and seeing if it works yeah right and then if it does great now you know you can use that in the future yeah if it doesn't then you scrap that and you try a different thing yeah this game you can't do that with. Because, like, you never know if it failed because it's not supposed to work or if it failed because it just – the game didn't realize it worked. (laughs) Right. And and that's a real – that's just like – we keep saying it over and over again. That's a really frustrating thing. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess to just say specifically the part of the game that I stopped on was um, in the meat circus – uh, which, which is kind of the end game area. Yeah, you're um, inside of a combination of your and a young version of General Oleander's psyche. Yeah, and like your family were acrobats, and his dad was a butcher. So you're inside a combination of the two. It's a yeah. circus where everything's made out of meat. Yeah, and one thing you're trying to do while you're in the meat circus is protect the young version of Oleander who's chasing around a bunny. <sighs> And so the first phase of the meat circus is an escort mission. Yeah. And you, you, what you have to do is four times, you have to 
hold the bunny with your telekinetic powers until Oleander gets there and picks him up. Right. And then his like stupid little hat with a little propeller on it yeah. flies him up to another part of the level. You do that, you know, four times and then you've beaten the escort version. Right. So I got to the fourth part. I I tried it for I think an hour, the same thing over and over again, yeah. and I just ultimately had to give up. What happens is as you get to each platform, um Oleander has a certain amount of health, yeah. and when he gets to a platform chasing his bunny around, these uh manifestations of like grotesque bunnies will attack him, yeah. and they'll slowly do damage to him, and if he faints, you have to start over at the very first level yeah. every time. Yep. So at the fourth level, there's a really bit of precise platforming you have to do mm -hmm. and the part i gave up was with like the sword throwing yes and it has to land on the right part of the board and then you have to time your swinging jump yeah and like the swinging jump had been a bane of my existence the entire game yeah i so, could never figure out how to get the momentum right right yeah so basically there's this like guy with swords he's throwing them at a dartboard what he's doing is he's throwing them at you right he's, he's throwing them at you and then there's a rotating dartboard behind you so you have to jump in a way that he hits the dartboard behind you uh, at an exact spot where you can grab onto the sword and then swing onto a platform as the dartboard rotates to the right exact spot. So you have to jump in a really precise way and make sure that the sword is in the exact right spot. And, and you have to do it before Oleander faints. Yeah, exactly. And you, you're doing it with a time limit. Right. And that's not even the first part of that. You have to... You have to access that part by hopping these meat platforms that lead you there. Yeah. And, like, the meat platforms are not hard. Right. They're very easy. Yeah. But because the mechanics are bad, I fell off, like, six or seven times yeah. each try because, like, I would land on it and then slip off. Or, yeah. like, I wouldn't land on it quite right. Or I would fl fly over or whatever yeah. would happen. Yeah. If you miss the meat platform, then you go down, you fall all the way down to the bottom, and Oleander's health is slowly ticking down, and you don't have the time to get back up to where you were. It depends. But, yeah, see, it depends he... on where you fall. Because sometimes right. if you fall, you fall on ropes that bounce you back up. Yeah. Which is, like... If you're going to do that, why not just do, do it, it for the whole, the whole thing? Yeah. And the other thing is, like, if Oleander's going to faint, don't make me go back to the first level every time. Yeah. And one thing I tried to do was when I got up to the fourth level, I tried to save. But uh, if you reload from the save point, it oh, kicks yeah. you out of the meat circus. Yes. Yeah. Which is like, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. They knew. So what happened there, this is some very obvious gaming design. What happened yeah. there was they realized that people were going to figure out this loop, yeah. get frustrated by it, and try to cheat it quote-unquote, right. by saving at the end of the loop. Yeah. So they knew it was bad design that was frustrating and bad to play <laughs> and they because they, do it anyway. they removed that ability. Yeah. Oh, man. So here's a fun fact about the Meat Circus. Uh, Double Fine realized that part of the game was too hard yeah. after they released it. <laughs> so the PC version of the game is patched to make that part of the game a little more forgiving i think really? i think basically what they do is they make oleander lose his health a little more slowly so the ps4 version because it's just a because it's just an emulation of the ps2 oh version God. you played a version that was even harder than what i played and that took me like an hour and a half that took me that is so frustrating yeah that that took me so long that was fucking hard for me i wanted to give up but it was even harder for you <laughs> That so makes I, me feel better. Yeah. Um, and like when I watched the Let's Play of like from where I left off and on, yeah. the Let's Player mentioned like something about how Double Fine like fixed it, quote unquote. Yeah. And like, or like, oh man, now I see why people complain about this part of the game. Whatever. I forget exactly what she said. Right. But she right. said something along those lines. So like I knew a little bit, but I didn't know that the PlayStation 4 version wasn't necessarily yeah. fixed. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so mad. <laughs> I'm so mad right now. <laughs> 
That game is so bad. <laughs> the game is, it's so bad. Oh, yeah. Like, like, it's just so bad. Man, yeah, while we're talking about the meat circus, like, like I finally got past that part. And then, like, the next part is, like, a game where you're, like, grinding on rails through the circus that, again, like, suffers from its very imprecise controls. I just, like, flew <laughs> into the void, like, seven times. But, like, that was that was the least frustrating part of the meat circus. Right. Then. When I saw the water part where you're chasing your dad, I was, like, I was so glad I quit. Yeah. Like, because I might still be playing the game right now if I had. <laughs> no, like. You get to a part where you're a manifestation of your dad appears that's disappointed you and, and hates you and like uh hates psychics. Yeah, and hates psychics and he and he's like, You're you were never really an acrobat. Follow me through this obstacle course. And a a thing in the game is that your whole family's cursed to uh drown if you hit water. Like a like a hand reaches out of the water and pulls you underneath. So you have to chase your dad through an obstacle course that's slowly filling with water. I died so much. Oh, like God. I like like the escort mission took me forever. The chase your dad bit took me even longer because there's just bits that require the most precise platforming. If you miss it by like a hair, you drown. There's a bit where you're like climbing this cage with like you're you're climbing this cage with like fire shooting out of it, and it's sort of like rotating, and you need to jump from one part of the cage to the other. And what you need to do is you need to like jump outward a little bit. Move in the direction you're jumping, so like outward and to the left, and then back inward so you can grab the cage. Because if you just jump, if you just if you jump just to the left, you'll hit the edge of the cage and fall. That's so fucking uh, dumb. You had to do that five times. So there were parts where I jumped like to four parts of the cage correctly after like twenty minutes of trial and error, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then like I jumped to the last bit and I wouldn't. I'd move in a fraction of a degree, not the direction that I needed to go, and I just fall and I have to do the whole thing over and. <laughs> that is so frustrating. I feel your pain right now. And oh. like, yeah, the second I saw that Let's Play, I knew that I had made the right decision yeah. for myself. How, how much did they fall and die and stuff? Was it? She was freakishly good. Okay. She didn't fall like more than twice. Yeah. And I don't know if like she'd actually played the game before or she was just very lucky or just very good at video games. Yeah. I Man, it's funny because like I, I thought I was starting to get a handle of the way the game controlled. You and know, then, like, and then the like, circus happened. Like, 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 especially in the meat circus, like, that final part of, of rescuing Oleander was really hard, but I was getting to a point that I was practically speed running the first, yeah. the first three segments. I was like, okay, cool. I jump here. I jump here. I bounce here. I climb here. I swing here. Cool. I'm here in like record time and I just need to deal with this fourth part. Uh, but the chasing your dad segment changed everything. Oh, like that was like, I know nothing about how to play this game. And I don't think this game knows anything yeah. about how to play this right. game. Like, let's underscore the point that we're not talking, we're not, we're not being salty about like not playing a game. Well, <laughs> there it's, it's not about a game being hard. Like, again, I'll make yeah. the point about super Mario Odyssey, right. a platformer that is at times very hard. Yeah. But when, you know what to do. You yeah. just know you're the problem. Yes. In psychonauts, you're rarely the problem. Yeah. Usually the problem is the game. It sounds like hyperbole, but I promise it isn't. This is a short game. And I think it would have been at least three hours shorter if the gameplay, if what you thought you wanted to happen, happened every time you pressed a button. I agree with that. I There's at least three hours of bloat of me dying or taking damage when I shouldn't have. Yeah, I I agree with that. Uh, 
which is a, like when you think about it that's a lot of time yeah like three hours in a you know 12 hour game that's a quarter of the game yeah spent just dying because the inputs didn't work yeah or the platforming was just too fine in a game that doesn't do fine well yeah man i just Ugh. like the story and there, there's so much like to love about psychonauts but you have to like torture yourself <laughs> yes. to to experience it <laughs> right and <laughs> and like it's funny because some of the best parts are hidden in such like <laughs> in such slog and and like right and and like tugging at this game that that won't let you play it right right it punishes you for wanting to experience the best parts of the game. Yeah. There's an adjacent conversation I want to have uh, quickly, which is about the various um, psychic powers you get over the game. Yeah. So throughout the game, you unlock um, powers. You get telekinesis. Yeah. You get pyrokinesis. Yeah. You get clairvoyance, which is actually a really cool mechanic where when yeah. you activate it, you can see through the eyes of various things in the world. Yeah. Like you see yourself and then you navigate the world through that vision yeah which is implemented pretty pretty interestingly in a couple of places yeah um you get the levitation ability we talked about yeah you get like a psi shot um and there you can interchange you have a slot for three abilities at any one time so yeah. you basically quickly can interchange by going to a menu and putting whatever you want in each slot yeah and so you have access to all these powers that are really cool yeah work okay yeah um most of them work most of the time yeah i i think i think some of the I think some of the reason that the second half of the brains are comparatively more fun than the first there's, half. There's more you can do. Yeah, exactly. It's because they, at that point, the game assumes that you have every power and right. it utilizes a lot of them in very creative and fun ways. Yeah. But I would say within that, one of the kind of downfalls of the game for me, um, which probably is more related to the engine it was built in and like the time it came out than, than an actual design choice yeah was that the boss fights are all pretty bad uh because they're very perfunctory yeah. like there are one or two things that will work against each boss and you yeah. have to do those one or two things so essentially what happens is you have this really cool tool belt of tools yeah but you can't use the tools whenever you want you have to use in in boss fights at least you have to use the tools that the game tells you will work yeah and a lot of the times there's no good reason for this i imagine that oh yeah like they just didn't have the capability to like program all of the permutations in right right but specifically for instance that like there's a lot of times like the the um the side shot you get which is where like you shoot out a laser of yeah. psychic energy is very useful for common enemies yeah and it's useful in some boss fights right. but then there are some bosses that are just like without any explanation immune to it yeah like there's no reason they're yeah. just they're immune to it yeah it's very uh arbitrary it's very arbitrary so like you have to figure out different ways to beat those bosses which like yeah. fine i get from a design standpoint you don't want to make your boss fights too easy right but like the fact that there was no like there was no thought put into like explaining why your side shot wouldn't work against right. that boss or whatever yeah uh it just kind of left me lacking a little bit yeah it could have done the Mega Man thing where like it's possible to like you know, to hit them with the side shot for one health, right. you know, like per hit, like say they have a hundred health and you could theoretically whittle them down like very gradually if you're, if you're good enough at dodging them for that long. <laughs> but like at that, like at that rate, you'll, 
it avoids the, oh, they're just immune to it for no reason. Right. But it also makes you realize, hmm, I wonder if there's a way I can whittle more health down. Right. And you'll try some of your other powers and maybe stumble upon the right answer that way. And, like, ironically, by trying to make the boss fights not too, not feel too samey, they ended up making them frequently feel too samey. <laughs> like, instead of shooting them with their psychic energy, you have to knock something they threw at you back into them. Yeah. Which is, like, a trope of boss fights from this era. Right. But, like, they rely on that really heavily in Psychonauts. Yeah, they do. And one of the other issues I had was there are sometimes, in, there are times in the game where you're supposed to use your pyrokinesis to light things on fire. Like when you're fighting the uh, brain tank, yeah. like it's surrounded by a barricade of wood. Yes. But because the textures in the game are so bad, yeah. I didn't always immediately recognize what was wood versus what was stone. Right. So like I, it took me a while sometimes or like using a strategy guide to figure out that like, oh, that's wood. I can light that on fire. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the textures just weren't good enough yeah. to make that obvious to me. Yeah, that's fair. But, you know, the idea of a lot of the different powers are really neat. And, like, I like yeah. that you get this toolkit. Yeah. I just wish you had a little bit more flexibility in using it. Yes. I understand and why, given the time it came out, that wasn't possible. Yeah, that's fair. And actually, on that note, you get, like, somewhere between eight and ten different powers. Being able to assign three of those to button shortcuts is too few. Yeah. I needed, I needed more button options. Right. Well, <laughs> what they should have done is, like, have the ability to hold down right trigger press a button and change your power that way yeah you know it's like okay fair. cool like cool uh our rt and y will automatically equip like blasts you know like they needed that they needed to give me or even like being able to like click between them by like mashing down on the d-pad or something i had to pause the game so often to swap between my very small suite of button selectable powers yeah that's fair yeah there was one other gameplay uh, dis decision we hinted at early in our conversation that yeah. I think we can circle back to now, yes. which was the cobweb duster. Oh, God. So, the cob so within these psyches, first of all, the psyches are kind of cool, but they're bloated with too many concepts. Yeah. Like, so, uh, we, we also have sort of like only really flirted with the fact that this game mm, has... Flirty boy. <laughs> that this game has a lot of collectathon elements. Yes. There's yes, yes, yes. there's a there's a bunch of things called figments which are like little like neon like hologram like projections. Yeah, projections that you run into and collect and those that's how you level up in the game and gain new powers and stuff by getting a lot of figments. Each level has a set amount of figments and a lot of these figments are tucked in really absurd places right. or like sort of have these movement patterns uh, where you have to be in the exact place at an exact time in order to grab it. Right. And in addition to the figments, there are the vaults that you referenced earlier, which when yeah. you hit them, you get like a little uh, slideshow slideshow of like an aspect of that person's backstory. There are also the mental baggage things, which oh, is like yeah. these crying pieces of luggage. They're anthropomorphized yeah. that you have to find the tags for at other places in the level. And then when yeah. you have a tag and you run into the right kind of bag, you reunite them. Yeah. I have really no idea what the mental baggage did for you in the game. If you find every piece, if you reunite every piece of mental baggage with its tag within a brain, you unlock concept art for that brain. Oh, well, that's... Yeah. Uh, like, it's, it's, it's neat, but, like, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> My biggest problem with the mental baggage, and this is more presentation thing, was, like, they, the, the sound of them crying was really, really yeah. annoying. Uh, and it was there so that you would know that you were near one, but like sometimes you would be stuck in an area trying to do a platform for like and, 20 minutes and you just hear crying endlessly. <laughs> yeah, because the baggage, yeah, baggage would cry. Also, there were a couple points where a cutscene would 
take place in a part of the level where baggage was nearby. So you just hear faint crying in the, in the background during this cutscene. That's pretty great. Uh, (laughs) Similarly, uh, there's also like this weird little like yellow creature that like blows like snot bubbles. Yeah. Uh, you use as the teleport parts of the level you've unlocked. Yeah. And when you're not near it, it, it like blows the snot bubble and you just hear like the noise of like a balloon being blown up. You would hear that during certain cutscenes, sometimes really important cutscenes, and you just hear <laughs> the balloon blowing up noise intermittently, like every <laughs> it, three seconds. It also made a little like yeah, that, noise. Yeah, which, that that was cute. Yeah, but again, like the sounds never stopped. Yeah. Um but anyway, so in addition to you have all of these mechanics, it just felt bloated yeah. with collectible things. Yeah, exactly. Too much. So bloated. But one of the things is cobwebs. Early in the game, the cobwebs are there as a collectible. Uh, but as you get further into the game, they start blocking off mandatory paths that yes. you have to take to progress the story. Yeah. And the way you deal with the cobwebs is not like the figments where you run into them. You have to have an item called the cobweb duster, which like sucks the cobweb and then you can uh, continue on. Yeah. Another uh, another collectible in the game is arrowheads, right. which so, is the currency of the game. Yeah. Arrowheads are the in-game currency. And the cobweb duster costs a lot of arrowheads. Yeah. More than you can just reasonably grind. Yeah. It costs 800 you can get maybe like 30 per level, basically. Right. So there's another item you have to buy, which is like a detector for arrowheads. I forget exactly what it's called. Uh, the dowsing rod. Sure, the dowsing rod. So what you have to do is you have to get enough arrowheads to buy the dowsing rod. And then you have to use the dowsing rod to get more arrowheads to buy the cobweb duster. There's multiple problems with this that are that are intrinsic and obvious. Yeah. But one of the biggest problems with the dowsing rod is so annoying to use. <laughs> yeah. It makes this really awful sound constantly. Yeah. And you can't shut it off. And it's so loud. And it gets higher pitched the closer you get to an arrowhead. And basically, you have to walk around camp um, waiting for vibrations in your controller and listening yeah. for the sound yeah. to dig up airheads. And you get like, you know, 30 to 50 in a dig. Yeah, yeah, like 40 or 50. But yeah. like so many things in the game, the, the location of these are so precise. So you have to be like right perfectly over it and then mash a button to dig up the arrowheads. Yeah. And like grinding for the cobweb duster didn't take very long, but it felt like it took forever because it was such a pain to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember like, you know, th- this was a text conversation we had like you... uh you texted me, it's like, like, how am I supposed to have enough money to, to buy the cobweb duster? I'm like, buy the dowsing rod, then go around the entire camp looking for arrowheads. And you just say, fun, in all lowercase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's not, like, like a lot of things uh, in video games, it's not really a decision that was motivated by the gamer having fun. Yeah, no, that, that was, some parts of the game have some parts that feel clearly like padding this was the this, worst this offender padding. yeah this is the worst offender by far like having the having progression locked by an item is not inherently a bad game dis- design choice right but when you make the collection of that item tedious and like boring yeah then having your content locked behind that becomes a problem yeah yeah exactly I think that's really all of the design stuff we wanted to talk about right and that pretty well covers it there are a few presentation things to talk about still. I mean, we kind of right. talked, I talked about kind of the failure of the textures, at least on the PlayStation 4 a little bit. Right. And the colors are a little bit dim at times. Yeah. Um, but I think one thing that the game does super, super well, one of the strong points of the game is the voice acting. Yeah. The voice acting is really good, I thought. Yeah, it it is. Yeah, voice acting is really solid. Very cartoony. Yes. Uh, but, but fun. Uh, Delivered uh, with conviction, I would say. Yeah. 
everyone delivers their lines with an energy that fits this universe. Yes. And it's a lot of fun. Yes. There's a couple of questionable accents done by clearly white people. Right. Um, that is a problem. Yeah. But for the most parts, especially the main characters, like Raz and Lily, are the characters that talk the most. And they're very fun to listen yes. to. Raz specifically is played by the voice actor of Daggett from the Angry Beavers, <laughs> which is, like, everything for me. As as well as uh, Billy from Billy and Mandy and Invader Zim. He voices all those characters. All great shows, but I, I, I have a particular affinity for Angry Beavers. And I know yeah. Daniel does, too. That yeah, was a, no. a really formative tv show at least in our friendship yeah it was was a bombing yeah. over that like to the point of daniel downloaded the lost uh, <laughs> uh audio file of when angry beavers got canceled and <laughs> the writers were super salty about it yeah. and uh daggett and norbert have a conversation about the realities of the economics of television producing <laughs> yeah. and if you have any interest in that show go find that audio file if it's still on the internet i don't even know it's, but oh, it's, it's it is hilarious it's real good it is so good it's it's probably funnier than the rest of that tv series actually i wonder if that show holds up or not but like <laughs> man i i to this day hear like daggett's little you know, yeah (laughs) his little inflections in my head all the time and they're so great it's funny that you love daggett so much because i'm the norbert and you're the daggett yeah Yeah. exactly yeah in that friendship i was definitely the daggett yeah (laughs) anyway voice acting other than questionable um casting yeah uh is really strong uh overall yeah, I I agree. Like I I liked Sasha Nine's performance because I liked yes. how it was kind of reserved and like it sounded adult and like a tinge bored, but also I don't know. It was really no, nuanced yeah. in a weird way. Yeah, no, he sounded real good. There was some nuance there. Okay, Just right. jumping back real quickly to game design because I forgot I wanted to mention this, but like mm-hmm. one of the things that is sometimes frustrating about Tim Schafer games is sometimes the puzzles are so arbitrary and like impossible to figure out exactly what you're supposed to do right like there's some puzzles in uh you talked about in in monkey island like yeah that are just completely random and there's no way you would really figure out exactly all the steps you need without a guide right and there was some of that in psychonauts like there are some puzzles that were like i have literally no idea what my next step is supposed to be yeah it is so random and arbitrary yeah that's like actually i'm glad you bring like tim schaefer's tendencies up because tim schaefer i i realized like I used to call him one of my favorite game developers of all time. I've revised that to say he's one of my favorite game industry personalities of yes, all time. Yeah. He is one of the funniest dudes out there. He delivers everything he says with sort of this wryness and like he's he's a very adorable dude to like hear speak and and hear his jokes and his sense of humor is just it it lights me up whenever I see Tim Schafer like yeah. like talk and make jokes and stuff. When he made Broken Age one of the Kickstarter rewards was a documentary yes. about the making of Broken Age. That documentary is a better experience than any video game Tim Schafer has ever made. I agree. Because, because seeing the way his mind works and seeing how he deals with things is such an entertaining experience that it doesn't have the game mechanics of a Tim Schafer game. Yeah, I would agree that the documentary is very, very good. I, I agree with you. I think he's a great personality, and I think he's also a very earnest personality yeah yeah he really wants to do right by gamers he clearly loves video games and like you know he started working video games at a time when they weren't even a fraction of what they are now yeah and the pay wasn't a fraction what it is now yeah the population wasn't a fraction what it is now you made games because you loved to make games yes and that has always come across in his games the design of his games the the thought behind them is full of love and passion and a desire to do right by its audience yeah 
and and I will I play through the entirety of Psychonauts because that that love that Tim Schafer has for every game he makes did shine through yes. in Psychonauts. It ultimately yes. did, you know. And and I felt like like experiencing that love that he has for his games was was worth it. And I do ultimately think that it was. I agree, and I do think he is one of the greatest like dialogue writers, yeah, of all time in gaming. Yeah, like it's. It's funny, uh, one of his other games, Brutal Legend, Yeah, uh, it's, you know, uh, for, for those unaware, it's it's this very cool concept game starring <laughs> the voice of Jack Black, uh, where you're this rocker who, like, who, like, ends up in this universe that's just, like, inspired by all this heavy metal imagery, and, and you sort of, like, become, like, this rock legend, like, literally, because it's sort of this fantasy setting where music and rock and heavy metal is a weapon. There was a free demo for this game, the first like half hour of it basically. That was one of the best experiences I'd ever had. Like like, you know, the the gameplay was was pretty basic and they, they didn't like load too many like weird mechanics on. And just the writing was perfect and the, the characters were awesome and I'm like, oh, this is one of the best games I've ever played and it's just a demo. I can't wait for this to come out. I'm buying it immediately. I bought it immediately. Ten minutes after the demo stops in the full game, they introduce a real-time strategy mechanic where you manage roadies, and it's awful. It it ruined, like it it just makes the game really tedious and crappy to control. And like the thing is, like Tim Schafer is an amazing writer. He has amazing concepts and ideas for settings and worlds. And I want him to work on a game as a head writer and have no say over the the programming right. or or the gameplay or the mechanics. Right. I want that universe to exist because that would be an amazing video game. So basically what you're saying is you want a world in which Tim Schafer never founded Double Fine. <laughs> like, I don't know about that because like, like Double Fine still has worthwhile experiences in it. But yeah, like the fact that he, he is the game director in most of his projects right. uh, at Double Fine, like has not served Double Fine well. Also, while we're on a tangent, let's also just shout out Double Fine because they are producing some phenomenal indie games and they are yes. really stepping up as a producer. Yes. Like they're, uh, and that's the, awesome. Yeah. The amazing games that they're distributing yeah. is like, that is a big part of why I do want Double Fine to exist <laughs> because yeah, because Tim's an amazing dude and he, he finds games that he loves things about and makes sure that those games exist in the universe. Yes. Um, which goes back to that point about like caring about the gaming audience and like being an earnest person. And like, yeah. you know, we've done some, some hopefully constructive bashing of Psychonauts <laughs> today. But if Tim Schaefer were to be listening to this, I would just want to get across the point that we love you, Tim Schaefer. <laughs> yeah. We... And like, you've made some games that are very important to me. And, uh, and, you know, I really appreciate what you've done for gaming. Um, and this does not detract from that. Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> it, it doesn't. This is my, my apology and love to Tim Schafer segment. Yeah. Um, I think the last thing I wanted to say about the presentation of Psychonauts, and then we can maybe wrap this up, yeah, yeah. is I didn't love the music. I thought the music was kind of bland and yeah. just faded into the background. And like the rest of the sound design was so bad because everything just made noise all the time. Yeah, yeah. That like the sound design and the music as a whole did not leave a positive impression for me i agree with that music was kind of just there very largely forgettable sound design borderline awful sometimes yes. because because the noise sometimes those weird like background noises would just obstruct active parts of the game like cutscenes. and like it's sad because they're trying to be helpful they're trying to alert you to the presence of these collectibles yeah but turn them off turn, during the cutscenes. turn them off during the cutscenes and like fade them out yeah like, if i'm standing in one area for 20 minutes i know something's there yeah 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 <laughs> you don't need to continuously remind yeah me. yeah 
So, in a nutshell, <laughs> that's Psychonauts. I think time for our final thoughts. Yeah. If you're okay with that, Daniel. Yeah, yeah. Let's I, shake I on it. We're going to shake hands, uh, which no one can see. Yeah. But we this, did. That's a terrible was, handshake. Yeah. Well, you know. It was, but no one has to know. Yeah. <laughs> it was real good. What a great handshake you, <laughs> you gave me. You can hear the handshake fidelity. Yes. My final thought is that if you are a person who has not experienced Psychonauts and you want to for any reason because it's been recommended to you or you're in general a fan of Tim Schafer like Daniel and I were, which is, you know, to underscore the point, the reason why we were both so excited to play this game. Yes. Um, thank you again for the recommendation. Yeah, thanks, Cody. Is because we're fans of Tim Schafer. If you're a person who wants to play this game, watch a Let's Play. <laughs> Don't play it yourself. Because there is a lot of uh, really cool stuff that you can experience while playing this game, but you don't have to actually be the one playing it to experience it. And in fact, I think that takes away from the enjoyment. Like, I think if you go if you go into this, and you're, I mean, obviously this assumes you're a person who enjoys Let's Plays, which is a specific way to uh, consume media, and not everyone loves it. Right. But if you're a person who can tolerate that version of media, allow someone else to have the control issue. Yeah. And you just sit back and enjoy the writing and the kind of wacky story and universe that is on display for you. And I think it'll be overall a much more positive experience. Yeah. That is, that's, that's where I land. Yeah. I, I think I, I agree very strongly with that because I think Psychonauts is a game that's worth experiencing. I, I think more specifically, Psychonauts is a story and a setting that's worth experiencing. It, it has tries some really cool things. Yeah. It's, it's very innovative. It really does like, go outside the box so often and it's really like when when it clicks is just some really wonderful stuff to see and the narrative was something i'm very glad i experienced and like i want to go back and like and see the brain conversations that i missed and 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 look into more of the hidden vaults and stuff that i didn't find because, like, the lore for this universe is fascinating. Tim Schafer has built an amazing universe. Right. And if you have a chance to experience that universe and you're not the one with the controller in your hand, I can recommend that <laughs> wholeheartedly. Yeah. Um, if, if you do want to play through it, the game is frustrating to play. It is filled with gameplay flaws. and It feels its age. Yeah. And then some. Yeah, it, it does. And... When you're the one playing it and when we're the ones critiquing it and we have to look at every angle of the game, it's something that's impossible to ignore. We can't just say that the story was great. But but that's why I think the recommendation to watch someone else play it, watch a playthrough of the game, if you have the opportunity to do so, is a great suggestion. It's definitely a cool thing, and this might not be a bad time to do it because within the next year... Uh, we might see Psychonauts too. Yeah. Maybe that'll get delayed an extra year, and, <laughs> and who knows how fun it'll be to play when it comes out. But I do think that Double Fine in 2018 is better at making video games than they were in 2005. So fingers this, crossed. So Psychonauts one makes me very optimistic to see what Psychonauts two is like, if yeah. if maybe cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I mean, there's some really beautiful themes being explored in Psychonauts. Like, the story yeah. as it progresses and you, you're you watching characters grapple with their family legacy. Yeah. And they're exploring what family means and what's handed down. And, yeah. like, it's obviously, you know, Tim Schafer is working through a lot of, like, really interesting things from his childhood. Not just, like, with the family stuff. I don't know his family story. But what I mean is, right. like, you know, the experience of being a kid at a summer camp. Yeah, yeah. And, like, how you let your imagination wander when you're in a summer camp. 
Yeah. And like obviously being a kid who grew up during the um the Cold War and like how there's a lot of really interesting like of those influences in the game subtly too. Like obviously yeah. the character's name is Rasputin. There's there's a few like kind of like Cold War-y Russian elements in the game. Yeah, yeah. And like all of those things kind of interplay thematically in a really interesting and at times beautiful way. Yeah. And that's definitely worth experiencing in a video game. But again, you know, just take the brakes off and let someone else uh play the game itself and just just enjoy the story i think that's the optimal way to take in psychonauts yeah yeah i think that's fair well once again cody thank you so much for recommending this game as daniel said at the top and i truly believe like it doesn't matter if a game's if we enjoy a game or not right if it engenders an interesting conversation then it's a great fit for the podcast and on that criteria alone psychonauts was a wonderful fit for the podcast at least in our opinion (laughs) you know listeners out there you may disagree but we certainly had a lot to talk about a robust conversation about what psychonauts was and wasn't yeah and um, that's thanks to you cody so thank you again for sending that in yeah sorry for spending the first half of that shitting on a game you love so much hopefully we did it constructively So Daniel, why don't you tell the people out, out there what we're doing for our next uh, next game, which will the episode will come out in what uh, fifteen months? <laughs> Maybe fifteen weeks. Okay, I think we can pull All that right. off. All right, how about fifteen days? <laughs> we have fifteen hours. <laughs> oh boy, this would not be a good game to play in fifteen hours. Oh my god, no! So if you guys recall, at the end of our last episode, we almost picked Hollow Knight before realizing that it wasn't out for the Switch yet. During E3, uh, early... During the time it took us to beat Psycho. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Er- earlier this month, uh, Nintendo, during their E3 Direct, actually shadow-dropped. They-, they announced that Hollow Knight would be releasing for the Switch that day. It's kind of like a light shadow-drop. Yeah. We knew it was coming out for the Switch already. Right, yeah. that That's true. They were like, here it is, it's out now, play it now. And... We we do feel bad that we, you know, sort of initially promised that we would play Hollow Knight and then played another game instead. So since it's come out at, at like, just the right time, we've decided to sort of give you guys a listener recommendation. Double whammy. Double and dip. Yeah. Double dip. Double D. The patented play this double D. We're giving you guys the play this double D and also playing through Hollow Knight for yeah, the next episode. Yeah, Hollow Knight. Woo. Yeah. Yeah, we we kind of started to say last last time uh, why this was an exciting concept to us, but I think it, it still is uh, a great time to play this game. It's not really the kind of game that we've played for the podcast yet. No, so we have not at all. Yeah, uh, sort of this metroidvania platformer that takes a lot of influence from dark souls and other like games and i think it has some roguelite elements in it too yeah so it's so that that's really exciting for us to play to sort of uh have this new game experience and get to talk about it on the podcast and that was uh that was recommended by actual superboy on twitter last time and we're still really grateful for that recommendation so yeah. we're gonna do that now and we promise we won't punch a hole through time <laughs> What? Oh, oh, right. <laughs> I I feel like 
I, I feel like they they'd want to distance themselves from that version of Superboy. Well, that's their problem. <laughs> Don't come on my podcast telling me which Superboy I can talk about. <laughs> this is my house, and I'll punch through time if I want to. Technically, you're recording this in my house. That's true. <laughs> Fair enough. Anyway, next time we're going to talk about Hollow Knight. Yeah. Well, that wasn't planned. Yeah. Well, thanks again for listening. Um, thank you. F- Anyone who is still listening after we took over a month off, once again, we deeply apologize and we greatly appreciate your continued support of the podcast. Um, If you are still listening out there, uh, thank you so much um, and welcome back to us. Yeah, welcome back. Um, We're we're currently planning on getting the, the next episode out in a much more timely manner and I think... I think because it'll be on the Switch and we'll be able to play that even during the times we'll be traveling. Yeah. Um, that's that's a much more that that's gonna be pretty easy to do. So Yeah, look for us to get back on a more normal schedule. We recognize that this was an anomaly and we apologize for that. Uh, and we're hoping to get back on any more normal recording schedule now. Yeah. So that's next time with Hollow Knight. Thank you all again for listening. And as always, it's dangerous to game alone. Play this. Goodbye. <laughs> Game over.